This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. The Americans are asking who attacked our country. Today, we have a guest on the pod uh, to talk about a really interesting subject that I think we've been meaning to get into for a while, but we got the venerable Wub on the line. <laughs> Wub, are you there? Wub, I'm, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. How's it going? So uh, we, we've been following each other on Twitter for a while, and uh, you have a... You have a blog, right? That uh, that I've sampled and found really interesting, and liked a lot of your threads. And right, yeah, we'd been talking yeah. a little bit for a while about doing an episode. Then you came with a subject that I I, I thought was kind of perfect. So uh, mm-hmm. I guess today we're going to talk all things punk rock. And I guess I don't even know. We'll talk a little bit about I think the history of punk rock, but I know. Wub, you wanted to talk about kind of the, I think a lot of like the broader like social dynamics of it. And yeah, I don't know, I guess, you know, not to bury the lead, like, is it fash? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, ah. it's something I've wondered a lot over the last few years as, you know, I'm sure we'll also get into our own relationships with like punk rock, yeah. but it's something that like, as we've grown- definitely like called it fash on the podcast before. We definitely have. It's like fashliness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which isn't which isn't to throw it all out, but I feel like mm-hmm. it, for a while, I don't know. For a while, it's like it's something I felt compelled to like make a stand on. Maybe the last few years, just posting shit on Twitter is like pushing mm-hmm. back against like the punk mentality in yeah. like especially yeah. in kind of like the American left. It's true. And it's interesting to think of like the punk mentality as something that like really suffuses like the American like left culture. I feel you know, like the idea yeah. that like it's somehow like virtuous to be like a mess and like, you know, strung out and like limping along and just a like being so dirtbag. Like, yeah, a dirt bag if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a, a scumbag. Yeah. yeah, a piece of shit. Yeah, of course, crust punks and stuff. But I I guess to start like what I, I I know you you definitely are interested in this topic. Like what is your relationship with punk rock? Were were you a punk at any point? Uh yeah. It's interesting because my like town it has a local scene and it was 
you know, music wise, the different uh, sort of people who had like local projects, they couldn't necessarily just separate themselves from each other because nobody would like show up at shows. So you'd have shows where there would be like punk bands and then like some like really bad, like, you know, maybe like an indie artist would open the show, you know. So there was a lot of stuff like that. And then kind of after a couple of years, yeah, there was there was a lot more like punk and hardcore stuff. And um, when I first started going to shows, though, I was like 14. I mean, yeah, I'd wear like like I had a black flag shirt I'd wear like all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And oh yeah, what, and I definitely like I considered myself a punk and like had you know I mean whether they wore like mohawks or whatever, like spiked leather and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. A really good friend of mine back then was really into like making her own clothes and stuff, and you know, just I had another another really good friend and we both actually defined ourselves as nihilists in high school, you know, mm. like as like you know. <laughs> Interesting. We weren't just like, yeah, we're nihilists. We would like try to explain it. Yeah, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> we would basically try to like convert people to nihilism because that's how much we like believe in it. Um, I mean, uh, you know, that was yeah. a vibe. Um, I mean, what I was uh, actually I was a big goth teen. Oh, so, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wub, like you're from, what? you're from the same family tree. <laughs> yeah, it's same basic family, like post punk, I guess, yeah. is like the real yeah, yeah, post punk. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Wub, what what era were you kind of in high school? I guess without you know. Being uh, I was in high school. To. I was in high school when Obama was president. So like wow. twenty. Oh, okay. Like, That's 20, amazing. Twenty ten to twenty fourteen, mm. I guess. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're we're really the old timers here. Yeah, we're, we're the old. Yeah, we're old heads, basically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, that's because uh, yeah. I was in high school during the Bush administration, yes, and that was a. That, uh, see, that, I have a friend. I have a friend who was like a, a, yeah, that was like a Bush punk basically, and he would always tell me about it. Yeah, I mean that was that was an like era guy, where, 30s, like punk had already been totally like fully absorbed and commercialized by the 2000s like it was yeah, a total mainstream was like the genre era of like yeah. green day and stuff. green day american like, idiot yeah. and Wake growing up, up. <laughs> yeah like the, uh, like yeah, and, and growing up yeah. in the the bay area yeah. there was well, a lot some, of punk rock 41 was made for me back then. oh i had a friend who loved yeah. some 41 i always thought that was so lame like uh yeah. you know yeah. like, never waste my time becoming a casualty yeah i thought that was so fucking <laughs> my mom should have um, had an abortion yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wow uh, yeah, yeah yeah like yeah. uh that yeah that's a perfect example of like punk's like commercialization the like pop, is the pop punk. like what how yeah. old were they like, they were, like, like no 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 i mean they, they, they were they were a little older and um they, they were, were pretty young though oh yeah right i mean a lot of these bands were because punk is like such a teen like genre and right. that was like early 2000s that was i remember like freshman year like right around like 9 11 was when uh some yeah. 41 was really huge because their and, ages added up to 41 that was oh, like what some 41 was uh, yeah. sick um yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah but i mean but there was i remember the overriding um kind of vibe and maybe this is partly due because like i grew up in the bay area where you had like a certain strong punk scene like Gilman Street in Berkeley. I, know, oh, I went there okay. a few times in high school. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I, given the overall political orientation at the time 
and that a lot of young people were kind of anti-Bush, like anti-Republican and stuff. That was always kind of what I just like associated punk with more or less. I mean, I, I sort of knew like maybe some some hard I had some friends who were hardcore kids and right. maybe yeah. even knew that the odd like straight edge person here and then. Right. But yeah. I don't know, like my personal experience was always that the kids who were almost more like spooky right wing were like death metal heads, even though a lot of them yeah. like on a personal level were like very sweet and friendly people. But like yeah. that music definitely embodied a kind of just like, like literally. I cannot remember his name, but there was a guy I found out about who was like a huge death metal nerd that joined Al Qaeda. And he was also some uh, like business guy's son or something. I cannot remember his name. But that makes sense. Yeah. There's yeah, a death Google metal like Al Qaeda yeah. death metal. There's some uh, guy that was like he was a news story uh, during uh, the Bush Adam years. Godan. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's him. There's a few of those kids, like the kid who joined ISIS, who's the son of like an Air Force colonel who grew up yeah, in like suburban Texas. Yes, he was the most joining, joining ISIS to rebel against your Air Force colonel father. <laughs> Very. Punk I mean, punk. honestly, like ISIS is kind of punk rock. Maybe we'll come back to that. But like, honestly, <laughs> uh, their yeah, their yeah. style is like like they could be called there's, Black Flag, basically. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? No, they're a, they're well, yeah, a straight I mean, edge. I feel like there's they are straight edge. I mean, Except for uh, Captagon, um, Michael Muhammad Knight is maybe like the most like distilled example of that crossover who was like very into punk and very into yeah. Islam as well and, and became Muslim. Like, I feel like kind of like as uh, I mean, I think maybe he would acknowledge like sort of as like a oppositional defiant type thing. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. which he then later explored pretty extensively, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's got a, that's that got point, an echo but, in like American white kids, too. Yeah, there's definitely like a like sort of riot or whatever, if you want to call it that. In the last yeah, there's years. definitely a crossover between like between the sort of oppositional defiant like punk uh, thing and, and Islam, you know, for sure, yeah. like our conversion to Islam or exploring Islam, I think maybe yeah. uh hip hop people who go in the direction of, of hip hop maybe like oh yeah know, which sure. is yeah when i used yeah. to like it's hip hop straight edge suburbs, <laughs> when i used to tutor kids in suburbs and i would mention like that i like listen to hip hop to like the kids they'd be like my dad like you know would get would never let me listen to hip hop you know he like gets angry watching like just watching the nba <laughs> you know <laughs> like uh, like so i can see why people would like that could also be like a you know a rebellious yeah. but then of course that did become i think you know, a little bit after, like, I feel like when I was in high school, like Eminem kind of like broke the, oh, yeah. the veil a little bit of like hip hop in the yeah. suburbs. And there was yeah. a yeah, I liked, I liked like that. Eminem a lot too when I was really young. Like, yeah, yeah. he came out when, when I was, I was in like, middle school like, and it was, yeah, dope. like 10, 11 years old. Yeah, like, right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and I feel like that kind of, uh, yeah, that's kind of an expression of who, you know, he himself, like, kind of, like, one could say, like, a liminally, like, uh, Islamic figure in certain ways, but, like... <laughs> also, um, like, a liminally like a kind of punk figure, figure as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, there's well, a little I mean, crossover in that aesthetic. That's kind of an interesting thing about, like, the 90s was it, it's when you started seeing a lot of those kind of subcultures start sort of fusing back together after being, like, very separate things for a while, I think. Yeah, and now you're really seeing that with like SoundCloud rap and hyper pop and stuff. There's been a huge mm -hmm. like, 
Yeah, you can definitely see, even though punk, like pure punk, has been almost resigned to like this sort of boomer category of music, like it's still out there, but I don't know, like if kids, like there probably are still kids just like there are kids that still get into like Nirvana that are into it, but it's not an actively dominant genre, but it is hugely influential on like SoundCloud rap and a lot of things that are huge with like the kids these days. So, yeah. I went to a I went to a, a a hardcore show for which no hardcore band is like big really unless they're like hate breed or something but for a yeah. band that had gotten pretty big for what you know for that type of music and the punk a local punk group opened for them and there was a kid this was like three years ago and there was a kid with a giant mohawk that almost broke his neck stage diving off the rafter. <laughs> <laughs> so those that kids was. are still out there they're just a little bit maybe fewer and further between the yeah true, like the true punks the true <laughs> believers i as far as i know gilman street is like still there it's a, it's a pretty yeah. small venue but uh i don't know maybe yeah. covid killed it but yeah i haven't been i think i went to a hardcore show in staten island in like 2009 that's the oh, last gosh. time i've ever seen like hardcore like a hardcore scene up close yeah, yeah, but but uh, but it is yeah. it is interesting to like reflect back on the '90s because going back and watching a lot of these like old documentaries and stuff and like old talk shows and like media from the '80s and the '90s, like I still do. It, it brought back in my memory kind of the feeling of like what it meant to be a punk, like in the '90s. Mm-hmm. And I was like a little mm-hmm. kid, so I wasn't actively into it. But it's like like you know like i had an older sister and there were like my friends had older like brothers and so i was it was always kind of around you know and that it felt and even just watching like i'm sure we'll talk later about like like the donahue episode that we watched about (laughs) where he interviews hardcore punks like it really uh you really get a vibe of like how much it meant to people to have this identity and be a part of the scene and adopt these kind of attitudes and stuff and it did feel kind of like it's it's weird watching these like Gen Xers just talk about like nobody cares like what you know what happens to kids man nobody cares about kids like we're just <laughs> like a lost generation man like a, a grown ups they just don't get and it's like what are you talking about like everybody's a kid and then everybody grows up like what is this <laughs> but but of course you could tie that all the way back to the sixties right and kind of like to yeah. the new left to the counterculture like don't trust yeah. anybody over thirty man and kind well, of stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, like, the Stooges a lot of the time get pointed at as the first punk band, which that's debatable, obviously. But sure. Iggy yeah, Pop yeah, pretty early on. Yeah. Said that his his big influence that made him want to start a band was going to see The Doors mm. and being like in the crowd and thinking Jim Morrison was like such a badass and then being like, "Well, I want to outdo that guy." Yeah, yeah, he you did. Know, he like, was being, like, "I want to be yeah. more, even more like." outrageous and like even more like and have the music be even more like overwhelming and like you know and aggro and stuff and so yeah yeah yeah, you see that with like his style in the stooges like early on like raw power like with his like glam like shirtless kind of look and i mean mick jagger also is somebody who kind of i guess had that a relative influence of like while and yeah well and, and david bowie as well had a big influence on like early punk fashion Totally. Which I want to get into with the Sex Pistols because in the Clash as well because they're both interesting as far as the that goes. I remember when I was the, when I was no, first kind of getting into punk, there was a whole debate about whether you could consider them boy band. Or not. 
I think given what's come out in recent years, yeah, like you sent that article about Steve Jones's um, uh, memoir, which I I didn't get to really like dig into, but I I saw some excerpts and kind of looks like a boy band. Yeah, like yeah, and well, you got to think about too. Recently, Johnny Rotten got so much shit for uh, supporting Trump or pretending at least to support. Oh, that's so funny. That was the first. That was the first like concert. I was not like a fan of the Sex Pistols, like either the old work, but a friend of mine who was also into like punk music, uh, as was I, like in high school, uh, invited me to go see like a Sex Pistols concert at like this arena, like on Long Island. and yeah, it, uh, I mean, it was just Johnny Rotten, obviously, so vicious having been dead for many years, but it was just like very lame and, and awful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I yeah. think the Reverend <laughs> like open for them. It was, yeah. Uh, but it's, yeah. It, well, it, that's happened a lot over the last few years is like the inevitable, like your punk icon from childhood has come out and said something super reactionary. And it's like, yeah, no, we know, like, well, that that's such a fascinating thing today is like talking about the old punk rock, but whatever. It, yeah. it, exactly. Like if you go back to the very beginning, the right wing, like reactionary character, even putting aside like Nazi skinheads, but just like the right wing orientation of punk rock really is not like a later phenomenon that like ruined punk it's really there from like the very beginning right yeah and i think a lot where a lot of people get it messed up is like so i like to use the song nazi punks fuck off as an example oh yeah yeah, good song. Like yeah people yeah. great song but people have this kind of interpretation of it now like like it was like yellow biafra was like preempting Nazis from coming to shows. And it's like, if you read about why he wrote that song, it's a lot more the reverse. It's like Nazis come into shows or at least people who were, you know, I mean, this is where it gets into the whole irony thing, but it's like people who were at least dressing up like Nazis coming to shows, you know, had caused a lot of people who legitimately were like very racist and like nationalists to start coming to shows, you know? absolutely and it was written it was written as a response to that not like a preemption you know totally and there's totally. a there's a documentary of all places boston in the 90s there's a documentary about their hardcore scene where some guys talk about how they had to like kick the nazis out of the hardcore scene there you know like beat the shit out uh, yeah. Of yeah well i mean no it's like, true I, you just gotta kill a commie for mommy uh, um, oh yeah we're gonna talk about <laughs> right. that right oh yeah gang, fucking, gang fucking ramones song called kill a commie yeah, yeah. yeah that was a I, I forget which ramon did that song solo but it's like Kilakami for mommy, and then later it's like drop a bomb on Muhammad. Yeah, like it's <laughs> like, fucking annoying. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I um, remember that. Part. Like the Ramones. Ramones. I mean, speaking of Long Island, uh, a huge hub of punk rock. Um, yeah, like yes. huge kind of anti-communist reactionaries. Like the entire yeah, you know, no, their entire and lives. I don't know if it's relevant at all because I couldn't. He didn't seem like any kind of like high-ranking guy or anything. But one of the Ramones had a dad. I don't think it's I don't really think there's a kind of like any deep political connection there. Like a McGowan connection. Yeah, yeah. It's more Yeah, not like like to that. It wasn't like Frank Zappa's dad being an anti-ultra like offered 
Exactly. Yeah. But it is it is funny talking about like, oh, Nazis coming to shows because like I'm looking right now at the the screenshot of like one of the Sex Pistols most famous interviews uh, from the Grundy show in 1976, which has kind of like gone down in punk lore is like the moment yeah. that broke British television and made the punk right. so popular. And <laughs> it's just like one of the one of the dudes. Uh, I don't know if it's like a I don't think it's a band member, but it's like one of their like little minions like behind them during this interview is just wearing a swastika armband. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And it's like not even yeah. mentioned. I mean, it's not even like brought up in like the interview. It's like very bizarre. Yeah. And you see that again and again. So it's like, hmm, I wonder why like Nazis keep showing up to your shows. Maybe it's because like everybody's wearing swastikas ironically and at a certain point. Right. At what point yeah, uh, does that it, stop being super ironic? Yeah, I think what I, I said on Twitter the other day that you can maybe say that punk from the very beginning was not necessarily some kind of psyop. I don't necessarily believe that myself, that it was like, I don't think it was necessarily a psyop like from the beginning. But I think that there's always people watching developments and culture, especially if they're developing out of a counterculture that largely was a psyop, you know, like yeah. in reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And they're always looking to see how they can instrumentalize that. You know what I mean? And um, and another kind of thing that's interesting about that is that maybe even some of the Nazi punks themselves weren't aware of any kind of deeper connections. You know, um, I do get that impression from a lot, a lot of the of, time. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of the time, people in right, even in like right wing groups, won't realize that it's like you know informants or infiltrators or anybody like running the, the group you know they just kind of take for granted that you know mm-hmm. this person who has all this money you know to spend on radical you know terrorist sometimes activities <laughs> just uh, just loves the country or whatever yeah yeah definitely but, uh, anyway, i did get i did not get to go a, too deep down that rabbit hole no for sure i mean but i did notice that i i watched an interesting documentary it's actually part of a series that um i discovered it late last night you can watch it on youtube it's called the the decline of western civilization have you guys ever heard of that (laughs) oh yeah i love the decline i mean as far as a film i love the decline of western civilization it's a really good one of the things i was yeah yeah it made it was what made me actually like I was already into punk before I watched that, but um, specifically Fear's performance at the end of the documentary that was like, I was like, see, I want to do that. I was like, I want to like be in a band that is so outrageous that people start trying to fight me before the show. <laughs> they were having a lot of fun. <laughs> you know there's too many, us, there's too many of us. There's too many of us. There's too many of us. Yeah, let's yeah, have a war. I love, I love yeah. that record. It sucks because Lee Ving is a huge conservative. <laughs> uh, I definitely got that vibe from him. Uh, yeah, the lead singer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a really great. It's from 1981, yeah. so it's like just as the kind of new wave, like or second wave of punk. And like hardcore we're taking off and it's it's right. just all about like the yeah. uh, several it profiles several bands in los angeles uh kind of in like 1979 1980 including early black flag i think it was pre-henry rollins right but which is interesting because yeah, like the singer is like I, I forget who the original singer was but he's not white you know and a few of the members yeah like, i forget Get, I remember correctly, the original singer Black Flag was actually Keith Morris, who later started the Circle Jerks. And then uh, Ron Reyes was the second vocalist. Oh, Ron Reyes is the, okay, so he's he, the one in the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. Ron Reyes and Des Kadena, I believe, were both people of color. And it's funny because Black Flag kind of started getting big under them. And Rollins ended up in the band because he was a fan. And they put out in some zine or something. I might be messing this story up, but apparently they put out some kind of thing. They're like, yeah, we need another vocalist, even though we've already been through like five. And Rollins was like, well, maybe I could be a vocalist. And then he just kind of on a whim auditioned for him and then like left his job in D.C. where he was working with Ian MacKay at um, like an ice cream parlor. <laughs> and then huh, like drove okay. to L.A. and just joined Black Flag and became huh. like one of the biggest like punk celebrities ever. Yeah. Which according to him, he's not a celebrity. Uh, that's what he would say. I mean, he's on the radio all the time here in L.A. He's like very much like a local, like beloved local legend and everything. Yeah. And is kind of like yeah. gone, he, gone he wrote normie a, a little bit. When Trump won. He wrote an op-ed when Trump won that was really funny because it was like kept calling him Comrade Trump. <laughs> oh my god. Awesome. Yeah. Exactly. He was just like he was totally on that Russia gate. He was like, Yeah, man, these freaking authoritarians. Oh, that's that's funny. the thing with that's I the thing with the like, whether they're Trump I thought, or they're that the, I thought he was on the other kind of like, you know, people's Republican. Oh, no, no, no. He has a no, he has a show on KCRW. There's no oh, way right. that yeah, he would right. be like pro Trump. Mm-hmm. No. That that's actually like the two it's like well, the two destinies. See, and like if you're like a Gen X LA punk, you yeah, either you become like become, a MAGA reactionary yeah. or like an you move to Highland Park and become like an in this house, like liberal. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. Th- there's only really yeah. two Kamala, Kamala, like K Hive supporters, and all basically. Which <laughs> yeah. that's the thing too. If you look at how K Hive supporters behave, like online, it's pretty punk rock. It's like kicking in out in terms all of like cur- digitally you know? curb stomping people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like oh, you know. No, they're incredibly sure vicious. The purity of the brand remains, you know. Right, right. But I, I did notice, like in the decline of Western civilization, even back in '81, that they're like in the crowd at many shows, and sometimes like Darby Crash, um, you know, the Germs yeah, lead singer, who is wearing like mm-hmm. an Iron Cross necklace the whole time, and has a sort of like this, yeah. like Nazi, this, uh, this Nazi skull like it, it it's a skull with a nazi helmet with like a swastika on it like in his ki- on his kitchen counter you see in one scene yeah and all these other people like in the crowd it shows a guy with a leg yeah. cast that just has like a nazi like swastika drawn on it and at one point they interview a bunch of different people and there's a guy who is asian and i'm I, i'm assuming by his affect gay who's just wearing a gigantic swastika shirt and just talking about like how like yeah. he I think he says some comment about like, yeah, like I wouldn't I don't hate Jews, like whatever. Like I wouldn't beat up Jews. I just like I'd beat up everybody. It was it was one of those kind of things like <laughs> I'm not a racist. Yeah. I just hate like, all humanity. Like, yeah, exactly. I okay, like what? Yeah, like but I, it gets a vibe. Like, do they really understand yeah. like the significance yeah. of like this? Well, and you gotta the think Well, and it's like you got to think how much of that for a lot of those people was literally like they came out of that era where like, uh, you know, the hippies had kind of broken a little bit with that earlier generation. But they were like really not just wanting to like get away from them, but like piss piss off the older generation as much as possible. Trigger them like the fastest way. 30, you know, a little bit 
less than 30 years after World War II to piss off a lot of Americans would be, you know, to wet to rep a swastika, you know, as kind yeah. of ironic as that mm-hmm. sounds, because, you know, such a big part of American post-war lore was when we beat the Nazis, you know. Yeah, yeah. We stopped the the big evil in the world that, you know, was, you know, not inspired by us at all, by the way. But <laughs> That's like, that. I mean, that's really like yeah, the historical. I understand. A big part of American post-war lore. Yeah, it's yeah, like if they like isolating. If the they knew how many paperclip scientists had yeah. been brought over, like maybe they wouldn't think it's it's as rebellious as they think it is. But I. Mm, Absolutely. You know, it, uh, it's similar to like the O9A, like, you know, hail Hitler ritual, you know, where they call Adolf Hitler like sent yeah. by our gods and stuff because like the greatest sacrilege to like, you know, uh, the Magian civilization of, you know, the contemporary West yeah. is to embrace Hitler. So it's like a similar thing where it's like incredibly provocative. Yeah. I remember yeah. Susie Sue had some kind of Nazi thing too. Uh, on like, you know, she was kind of a yeah. goth punk uh crossover figure i feel like she had she was also like kind of punk but uh yeah she also had a nazi controversy where she like wore a bunch of swastikas a number of people did um Mm -hmm. i think was it one of the girls well and it's like in the yeah in the lester bangs article yes (laughs) the hermeneutics of suzy sue's flashing style this is just something that came up online when i searched (laughs) the hermeneutics okay Um, yeah yeah. Well, yeah, you just mentioned the uh, the Lester Bangs yeah. article. Well, it's like in that Lester Bangs article when he talks about the girl from the cramps. Yeah, the girl from the cramps uh, doing that photo shoot, which I couldn't find a picture of this anywhere. I but she was doing that a photo shoot with the uh, a supremacist from Florida, like a church they all like, worked out of, you know, and I, I'm pulling up the uh, article right now. But like, uh, and she had like a gun and shit, and there was—I don't remember if it said a big swastika or what. There was like all this yeah. like symbol, like well, yeah, obvious I see, white supremacist symbolism yeah. all over it. And it's like, yeah, I, I see it right yeah. here. It's um, it says that in 1977, I opened up a copy of a Florida punk fanzine called New Order and read an article <laughs> by Miriam Lina of the Cramps, uh, Nervous Rex, and now Zanties. Quote: I love the Ramones because this is the celebration of everything American. <clears throat> everything everything (laughs) yeah right uh everything american everything teenage and wonderful and white and urban and this is him talking you could say the white jumping out of the sentence was just like ornette coleman declaring this is our music except the same issue featured a full page shot of miriam and one of her little friends posing proudly with their leathers and shades and a pistol in front of the headquarters of the united white people's party (laughs) under a sign bearing three flags god cross country stars and stripes race swastika uh sorry miriam i can just go so far with affectations of knee-jerk cretinism before i puke um yeah i mean god uh but this article is actually really great uh like lester bangs i i'd never really read his stuff before i guess he's very he's a big deal in um kind of the punk world right so i yeah i actually was just gonna bring a, a talk more about this Lester Bangs article, which I think uh, right. might be a good jumping off point for a lot of the other things we uh, want to dive into. So Lester Bangs, I, I hadn't read a lot of his stuff. Apparently he's like kind of a big deal in the music and like rock and sort of punk world, right? Yeah. As a yeah. critic. Yeah. And uh, I think some people said that he maybe coined the term punk rock, though I think that's disputed. 
yeah. But he was he was an early chronicler of like like Iggy and the Stooges, like Black Sabbath, a lot of these mm-hmm. bands that yeah, and a lot of uh, like uh, Robert Christgau, who's kind of like a meme yeah. on the Four Chan music board these days for having just these ridiculously like idiosyncratic reviews that don't yeah. even make sense. Yeah, I remember reading those <laughs> kind of, reviews. Kind of the, pro- the proto pitchfork. Um, yeah, he first yeah, he was definitely yeah, and yeah, his system of like ranking is like very idiosyncratic yeah. too. Yes, and yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I think I just want to read like a little bit uh, from the beginning of this article to sort of uh, lay out what he's getting at on particularly in the New York punk scene. I think this is in 1979. This is published in the Village Voice called The White Noise Supremacist. So I yeah. wasn't aware that people were kind of talking this much about the weird right-wing vibes in punk and maybe the racist vibes like this early, but here we are. So yeah, okay, I'll just read a little bit okay. <clears throat> from the beginning. The other day, I was talking on the phone with a friend who hangs out on the CBGB scene a lot. She was regaling me with examples of the delights available to females in the New York subway system. Quote, so the train came to a sudden halt and I fell on my ass in the middle of a car. And not only did nobody offer to help me out, but all these boons just sat there laughing at me. Boons, I said. What's boons? You know, she said, black guys. Why do you call them that? I don't know. From baboons, I guess. I didn't say anything. Look, I know it's not cool, she finally said, but neither is being a woman in this city. Every fucking place you go, you get these cats hassling you, and sometimes they try to pimp you. And a lot of the times when they hassle you, they're black, and when they try to pimp me, they're always black. Eventually, you can't help it. You just end up reacting. Sometimes I think nothing is simple but the feeling of pain. When I was first asked to write this article, I said sure, because the racism, not to mention the sexism, which is even more pervasive in a whole other piece, on the American New Wave scene had been something I'd been bothered by for a long time. When I told the guys in my own band that I was doing this, they just laughed. Well, I guess the money's good, said one. What makes you think the racism in punk has anything special about it that separates it from the rest of society, asked another. Because the rest of society doesn't go around acting like racism is real hip and cool, I answered heatedly. <laughs> oh, yeah, he sneered. Just walk into a factory sometime or jail. All right. Power is what we're talking about or the feeling that you don't have any or how much ostensible power you can rip out of some other poor sucker's hide. It works the same everywhere, of course. But one of the things that makes the punk stance unique is how it seems to assume substance or at least style by the abdication of power. Look at me. I'm a cretinous little wretch and proud of it. <laughs> so it's so true. So many of the people around the CBG, CBGBs and Max's scene have always seemed emotionally, if not outright physically crippled. You see speech impediments, hunchbacks, limps, but most of all, an overwhelming spiritual flatness. You take parental indifference, a crappy educational system, lots of drugs, media overload, a society with no values left except the hysterical emphasis on physical perfection, and you end up with these little nubbins, the only rebellion around, as Life magazine once labeled the beats. Richard Hell gave us the catchphrase, blank generation, although he insists that he didn't mean a crowd with all the dynamism of a static furry TV screen, but rather a bunch of people finally freed by the collapse of all values to reinvent themselves, to make art statements of their whole lives. Unfortunately, such a great utopian dream, which certainly is not on its first go-round here, remains just that, because most people would rather follow. What you're left with, aside from the argument that it beats single bars, uh, singles bars, is compassion. When the Ramones bring that sign on stage that says, Gabba Gabba Hey, 
What it really stands for is we accept you. Once you get past the armor of dog collars, black leather, and S&M affectations, you've got some of the gentlest or at least most harmless people in the world. Sid Vicious legends aside, almost all their violence is self-directed. So if they're all just such a bunch of white little lambs, why do some of them have it in for little black lambs? Richard Pinkston, a black friend I've known since my Detroit days, tells me, When I go to CBGB's, I feel like I'm in East Berlin. It's like, I don't mind liberal guilt if it gets me in the restaurant, even if I know the guy still hates me in his mind. But it's like down there, they're striving to be offensive however they can, so it's more vocal and they're freer. It's semi-mob thinking. Richard Hell and the Voidoids are one of the few integrated bands on the scene integrated what a stupid word he says in parentheticals i've heard that when he first formed the band richard got flack from certain quarters about ivan julian a black rhythm guitarist from dc who once played with the foundations of build me up buttercup fame i think it says something about what sort of person richard is that he told all those people to get fucked then and doesn't much want to talk about it now quote i don't remember anything special i just think that most people that say stuff like what you're talking about are so far beneath contempt that it has no effect it's really powerful among musicians, there's more professional jealousy than any kind of racial thing. There's so much backbiting in any scene. It's like girls talking about shoes. All musicians are such scum anyway that it couldn't possibly make any difference because you expect them to say the worst shit in the world about you. And uh, yeah, so he does say, though, that, uh, you know, there's ra- that there's racism in the scene. He thinks that this one guitarist feels like it was worse in New York than in D.C., he also says, I'll tell you one thing. The entrepreneurs, the record company people and shit are a hell of a lot worse. People like Richard Goderer, who produced our album, and Seymour Stein, and a lot of the other people up at Sire Records, they were totally condescending. They talked to you differently, like you were a child or something. I heard a lot of cliches on the level of being invited over to somebody's house for fried chicken. Uh, I was reminded instantly of the day I was in the office of a white woman of some intelligence, education, and influence in the music business, and the subject of race came up. Oh, she said, I liked them so much better when they were just Negroes. When they became blacks, she wrinkled her nose irritably. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right? Uh, Race hate, says Voidoid's lead guitarist Bob Quine. Sure, it gives me and Ivan something to do on stage. The defiant ones. Um, but the ease and insight of the voidoids are somewhat anomalous on the New York scene. This scene of the punk stance in general are riddled with self-hate, which is always reflexive. And anytime you conclude that life stinks and the human race mostly amounts to a pile of shit, you've got the perfect breeding ground for fascism. A lot of outsiders, in fact, think punk is fascist, but that's only because they can't see beyond certain buzzword symbols and pieces of regalia that I think really aren't that significant. Ron Ashton of the Stooges used to wear swastikas, iron crosses, and jackboots on stage, but I don't remember any right-wing rants ever popping up in the music he did with Iggy or in his own later band, which many people were not exactly thrilled to hear was called The New Order. In the past <laughs> yeah, three years... term just keeps popping up. Yeah. I know, right? Uh, in the past three years, Ron's sartorial legacy has given us an international subculture whose members might easily be, be mistaken at first glance for little brown shirts. They aren't for the most part. Only someone as dumb as the Ramones are always accused of being could be offended when they sing, I'm a Nazi, Shotzi, or tell us that the first rule is to obey the laws of Germany and then follow it with, eat kosher salami, I've hung out with the Ramones, and they treat everybody of any race or sex the same. 
who they hate isn't Jews or blacks or gays or anybody, but certain spike conk assholes who just last week graduated from the Rocky Horror Picture Show lines to skag dabblings and now stumble around Max's busting their nuts trying to be decadent. Whereas you don't have to try at all to be a racist. It's a little coiled clot of venom there lurking in all of us, white and black, goy and Jew, ready to strike out when we feel embattled, belittled, brutalized, which is why it has to be monitored, made taboo and restrained by society and the individual. But there's a difference between hate and a little of the old epater gob at authority. Swastikas and punk are basically another way for kids to get a rise out of their parents and maybe the press, both of whom deserve the irritation. To the extent that most of these spike domes ever had a clue on what the stuff actually meant, it only went so far as their intent to shock. It's like a stance, as Ivan says, a real immature way of being dangerous. Maybe, except that after a while, this casual, even ironic embrace of the totems of bigotry crosses over into the real poison. Around 1970, there was a carbuncle named Wayne McGuire who kept contributing installments of something he called an Aquarian Journal to Fusion yes. Magazine, wherein he suggested between burblings of regurgitated Nietzsche and bad Selene ellipses that the Velvet Underground represented some kind of mystical milestone in the destiny of the Aryan race, and even tried to link their music with the ideas of Mel Lyman, who is one of the prototypes for the current crop of mind-napping cult daddies. Hmm. Interesting. On a less systematic level, we had little outcroppings like Iggy hollering. Our next selection tonight for all you Hebrew ladies in the audience is entitled Rich Bitch. On the, <laughs> on the, cool. On the 1974 recorded live bootleg Metallic KO and my old home turf Cream Magazine, where around the same time, I was actually rather proud of myself for writing things like in an article on David Bowie's, quote, soul phase. Now, as we all know, white hippies and beatniks before them would have ne would never have existed had there not been a whole generational subculture with a yawn with a gnawing yearning to be nothing less than the downest, baddest, and words. <clears throat> Everybody has been walking around for the last year or so, uh, acting like faggots ruled the world. When in actuality, it's the N-words who control and direct everything, just as it always has been and properly should be. Uh, this is an interesting connection here. I figured all this was in the Lenny Bruce spirit of let's defuse them epithets by slinging oh, them out. Into, yeah, oh, fuck Lenny Bruce. Anyways, awesome. um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe not, but I, it's annoying. It's I thought bad. absolutely yeah. nothing of going to parties with people like David Ruffin and Bobby Womack where I'd get drunk, maul the women, improvise blues songs along the lines of I'm not going to uh, like show. Uh, he writes in like Ebonics. Um, yeah. Uh, N-word wishes his dick was bigger. Yeah, and of course they all laughed. It took years before I realized what an asshole I'd been, not to mention how lucky I was, was to get out of there with my white hide intact. Um, yeah, I, I, okay, about Lenny Bruce. I'm sure a lot of these guys were very happy to see this white kid drunk on his ass making a complete fool, fool, if not a human TV set out of himself. But to this day, I wonder how many of them hated my guts right then. Because Lenny Bruce is wrong. Maybe in a better world than this, such parlor games would amount to cleansing jet-off takes, and between friends, where a certain bond of mutual trust has been firmly established, good-natured racial trade-offs can be part of the vocabulary of understood affections. But beyond that, trouble begins. When you fail to realize that no matter how harmless your intentions are, there is no reason to think that any shit that comes out of your mouth is going to be understood or happily received. Took me a long time to find that out, but those words are lethal, man. And you shouldn't go just go slinging them around for effect. 
This seems almost too simple and obvious to say, but maybe it's good to have something simple and obvious stated once in a while, especially in this citadel of journalistic overthink. If you're black or Jewish or Latin or gay, those little vernacular epithets are bullets that riddle your guts and then fester and burn there, like torture flack hailing on you wherever you go. Ivan Julian told me that whenever he hears uh, the N-word, no matter who says it, black or white, he wants to kill. Once when I was drunk, I told hell the only reason hippies ever existed in the first place was because of N-words. And when I mentioned it to Ivan while doing this article, I said, you probably don't even remember. Oh, yeah, I remember. He cut me off. That was two years ago. One ostensibly harmless little slip. You take a lifetime of that and you've got grounds for trying in any way possible, even if it's only by convincing one individual at a time to remove those words from the face of the earth, just like Hitler and Idi Amin and all other enemies of the human race. So, yeah, I thought uh, that was. Uh, yeah. And I want to just juxtapose yeah. that for a second against the whole like a couple of years or maybe last year, there was that girl who was like, I've academically studied punk, you know? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Now that that part of it became a big meme but she like she claims in the video she was like you know yeah and you know punk it came out of you know radical like african americans and you know stuff like that and it's like what she's talking about is that there were bands like there's a documentary about a band called death oh death death is a great band yeah that yeah, like right. were black and there were black punks from the very beginning but like the con the idea that it was mostly like a black thing is just it's not I've from what I've ever read or seen is just not true. And like that seems ahistorical and my own personal experience like, going to like local shows that were like punk and hardcore and, and all that stuff was that there was just a lot of casual racism until probably about well yeah, I mean I think that five years ago and then it then there became and I'm glad about it, but then there became a much more like aggressive kind of anti racism that I personally have experienced, you know, and it's like um that's my personal experience with it and it's like yeah i mean when i first started going to shows nobody was just like super racist or anything and, and in my area there was a lot of like um, hispanic people that went to shows and stuff but like uh, uh or latinx you know i don't know but um you know that would would go to shows and like uh you know no one was just like super overtly racist but there was a lot of like casual racism sexism and, you know a lot of like kind of casual homophobia and i would imagine cultural influence in american culture in general but like historically speaking like you know uh whenever there's like that dialectic between like the sort of uh white appropriation of black art forms or the black participation in uh white art forms that are kind of created mm. uh you know it, it, to exclude them in some way like maybe minstrelsy is an example you know you have like mm -hmm. black minstrel performers and obviously black face minstrel performers there's often like you know a, a dialectical tension between like people trying to use this like in a liberatory way and racism you know and i think that that is true of like other cultures that are inf other musical subcultures that are influenced by have a have a, uh, a black influence in them uh, right. like in, in rock or in all sorts of, of things like that you know there's right. uh, always been that kind of uh, reactionary element uh, and also you know uh, a, a another an anti-racist element maybe that uh, is in tension with it and they uh, go back and forth you know uh, in yeah. terms of their dominance but I mean yeah. the thing about punk I feel like is that uh, definitely like in 
the like mainstream kind of like white suburban manifestation of it like the the racist elements or at least like yeah the casual racist elements really the sort of ignorance and not like realizing why like it's not funny to be like ironically like let's kill every arab or something you know like it's like not worth whatever like provocation you think you're making like that really did seem to be lost on people and yeah like ultimately like the sus aspect of it is that like the politics at the core of it were ultimately like you know no not to knock on your high school self but like kind of like nihilistic and just like sort of like fundamentally reactionary and just based on kind of like osmosing whatever like oppositional take you could like uh you know, we watched that Donovue interview with the hardcore kids and yeah. uh, from like the 80s. And it's shocking to see them like being like, you know, we're rebelling against the suburbs, you know, like this, you know, we can't do anything. And even like all the experts were like agreeing basically with that analysis and saying like these kids that don't have anything to do, you know, in the suburbs, we've we've left them by the wayside, you know, yeah. they they can't they don't have places to go and have fun. So they they enter into this music scene. But yeah. like their actual political opinions that they were espousing were like literally Reaganite talking points like about welfare yeah. queens, like down Absolutely. to the actual yeah. vocabulary. And, yeah. you know, it's the same thing of like kill a commie for mommy, like this, this senseless contrarianism of like hanging up an SS flag, uh, you know. Et cetera, oh, I mean, et cetera. well, yeah, I mean, the, the minute that you the, the minute that like Donahue calls them on their bullshit by reading, uh, I think, this one song by the. Uh, the hardcore band leader Jimmy Gestapo. Um, yeah, yeah, was yeah interviewed yeah, on Jimmy it. Uh, like, like they're they're kind of like it's like their parents' like middle class Reaganite politics like totally flare up the minute mm-hmm. they're like asked to confront like, hey, like this song, this is this is reactionary shit, man. Like this is kind of racist. Like, like all these minorities like complaining that they have it worse. Why don't they go back to their own fucking country and stop? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, yeah. Well, and you know, it, what's, like, a, what's a more punk rock statement than the solution is not, you know, government is the problem, you know, whatever the Reagan quote. Right. Is. I mean, it's what's literally, more, you know, yeah. The solution and, to our problems isn't more government. Government is the problem. Like, you know, there's literally a true sounds of Liberty song called abolish government. <laughs> isn't it now, funny course, how there's that's, really, that's more of an anarchist, I guess, perspective. It is. It, but it's very easy to appropriate that language for, yeah, well, as we've discussed, see, as anarchists in general have yeah. this issue. Um, well, I remember going to yeah. see like the leftover crack, like uh, it, when I was in high school in, in New York, like around St. Mark's Square. Um, and, uh, you know, they uh, like I remember one of the bands that was playing that day, like, uh, you know, said like, God bless America or something like on stage. <laughs> and someone was like from the audience was like, boo. And he's like, oh, you're uh, oh, boo boo you're wearing a shirt from this band like that's a patriotic fucking band dude you know like it's just like are you fucking kidding me and this is like in the heat of the bush era cool. they're like that's handing so, out so like crazy. anarchist literature at this event and meanwhile like arguing about like you yeah. know how you gotta like love the stars and stripes and like pledge allegiance to the red white and blue like yeah. it's, well and, and that's kind of yeah. that's kind of yeah. a precursor to that whole like uh that whole it, that's kind of a precursor to that whole trend of being like you know fr- uh fucking like George Washington said, smoke weed, acquire <laughs> currency, 
and own guns. Yeah, awesome. yeah, no, but it's totally. more base than that. Well, you notice like in the Donahue interview as well that when they kind of go around to the audience, there's that older black gentleman that is not kind of not having their business. And he's like, you know what I did? Like when I when I got out of high school, I went and joined the army. And then like, you know, I worked for 30 years and blah, blah, blah. And I don't see why they can't. And like Jimmy Gestapo's reaction is like, hey, sir, sir, like you, I'll take you out to any military base. I they, I know 200 Marines that are in the hardcore <laughs> scene. Like we got we got so many service members like yeah. in our seat and it's like everyone's in the military and it's like right. uh, that yeah. doesn't sound as cool uh do y'all know anything about um mel lyman the cult leader that they the, uh, no McGuire well he, meant, he, he mentioned him in the article yeah. but yeah so lyman is funny because he's like i don't know a ton about him i just kind of gave gave him a, a little look over before the show but like uh he was friends, or I don't know if he was friends, but he was in the circle of like Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the acid probably that he got to start, you know, his cult with. He he was in the circle, like in the orbit of Timothy Leary whenever he was in New York. And like, yikes, you know, kind of the vibe I got from it was he seemed he seemed similar to like Manson or somebody, but in New York instead of in like California. Oh, I see here. He founded the Fort Hill community. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a cult. Um he mysteriously died, I guess, in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. And he I mean he knew uh, from what I understand, he knew a couple of musicians as well, kind of in the like in New York, uh and was himself kind of like a failed musician, like similar to Manson and stuff like that. Like he just <laughs> he, it seemed like the 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 paradigm very similar to Charles Manson. Yeah, he did. He did fall in. I see it here that, oh, he fell in. He fell in with Timothy Leary early Um, in 1963. He became acquainted with uh, Timothy Leary's group of LSD enthusiasts, the International Foundation for Internal Freedom, if if. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess uh, he's a I'm just reading from his Wikipedia. Knowing LSD's power, uh, he felt his girlfriend judy silver was not ready but stated the bastards that if if gave her acid i told her not to take it i knew her head couldn't take it Lyman's fears turned out to be justified and she left college and returned to her parents in kansas uh, according to a rolling stone article judy got all fucked up this is his second old lady i mean like she got really twisted i don't know if it was the acid or the scene or whatever but she split yeah. Huh. Um, and you know, no, something that's kind of interesting that Dave McGowan brings up and that also Tom O'Neill brings up in Chaos is how it, towards the later 60s in California, kind of the drug culture shifted off of acid into speed and got really into like mm-hmm. amphetamines. And oh, definitely. That, that fueled the early punk scene. Like yes. everybody would do amphetamines. And Whitney, you know, uh, it's funny because you know, is not a punk necessarily, but a lot of punks yeah. Motorhead, and he talked about doing that old school amphetamine, and he said it was you would snort it, and it was like, and in some interview he gave, he said that you would snort this amphetamine, and it was like snorting like powdered concrete, basically. Oh my <laughs> but it God. would like it would just get you wound up for like days after you like. I, I wonder if the Hell's it. Angels were you know supplying them. I'm um, sure. I'm and sure. of course, we know there was other other another really um 
monumental uh, historical movement in the 20th century that was powered by speed. Um, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. Air mocked. Well, yeah. You know, I don't know what it is about meth and like Nazis, but like, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Yeah. But, well, uh, and you know, you got to think about like um, um, Nick Land and accelerationism. And stuff right. Yeah. Also. Nick Land literally, I mean, on all kinds of drugs, but from what I understand, his main thing was various forms of amphetamine. Honestly, looking at the, the up for days on end. looking at the crowds uh, at a lot of the punk shows and the decline of Western civilization, it everyone was acting really weird. But I, I was almost thinking for a second, like, are, what drug is everybody on at these shows? Because everyone yeah. seems like really tense. I mean, yeah. some people are just like like geeking out, like tweaking mm -hmm. and yeah. like, moshing around. Other people were just kind of standing like really yeah. intensely like staring at the screen but like not dancing and it's like well you oh, know maybe there like are like some of speed. these like weird ass drugs like i was watching the uh beatles documentary that recently came out you know peter jackson like restored all this footage of them and at one point they take like some weird old amphetamine that like is like off the market now like it was legal at the time but then they're like it's too addictive and they just took it off the like you know uh Excellent. and like i'd never heard of it before it was like yeah. i forget what it was but yeah it was just this weird part where they're like let's all take this let's all now, take this drug everyone well, the, you know that i think we'll they they, they started the doing that in you know, hamburg like, right they, that's where they yeah. developed like their speed habit because they would play late night shows like five days a week and yeah. so the only well, way to get yeah, but it was too. just weird how like this drug like had just like completely at least like it had escaped my like memory totally like you know yeah. and like it's weird how i mean remember a crocodile like there's weird, oh, yeah. like, oh, yeah. amphetamines that just like oh, emerge yeah. and then like just like you know recede back into the mists yeah. of time and speaking yeah. of isis i already yeah. mentioned it before but captagon which has been found like all over yeah. syria and like hundreds of right. thousands of like captagon pills which is kind of like adderall um, there was a there was a supplement they get. you want to talk about you know um kind of like imperial death machines fueled by speed there was and they 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 had a supplement available in commissary during the iraq war called called ripped fuel and uh, it was supposedly like a pre-workout, but you could, I, I, I encountered it by watching that show Generation Killed. And then, of course, I looked it up online mm. to see if I could find any old school rip. But, uh, but uh, it, it, it was a drug that was like a, a bunch of caffeine and then a bunch of like ephedrine. And ephed the amount of ephedrine in it was basically what kind of like got people geeked out. And there's a scene in generation kill where a dude is just like eating tons of ripped fuel like as they're going into a Baghdad, i think or, or you know wherever they're going jesus and like um and um uh there's people on the comments of like the youtube video of that clip and then like in the comments of like because they still have ripped fuel now but it's like just the caffeine they took the ephedrine and whatever else was in it out of it you know yeah, and yeah. um, and all that you can just see a lot of veterans being like, "Man, remember the days when we would uh, just eat like handfuls of ripped fuel and go shoot these damn, you know, <laughs> these damn, uh, these damn Arabs." Jesus, and I think other, you know, I think also I, I know I've encountered reading in various places like probably like like huge swaths of the military are either prescribed Adderall or like Modafinil. Like mm -hmm. provigil, mm -hmm. um, I know yeah. like dr drone operators are obviously all on like amphetamines, as yeah. well as combat troops. Um, I remember even reading a study once that they maybe I I don't know if this is like super proven, but that they hypothesized that um, that taking taking amphetamines. Uh, and then encountering traumatic situations uh, actually like deepens the PTSD 
because I like would, it, I would it imagine imprints, so. You know what I mean? Because like it imprints on your brain harder because you're hyper aware. It's almost yeah. like your brain can't dissociate a little bit from yeah. it, like when it happens. Yeah. So it, it's like maybe that compounds like the problems of like PTSD and like depression that you know soldiers have, or or yeah. drone operators from killing people like on Adderall all day. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, combined with the sleep deprivation. Absolutely. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. We're from Frisco. Um, cool if I, I, I there was a, a kind of like a little connection i wanted to make and just going into this next yeah. hour if i could like would it be cool if i just made it and then like yeah by all let's means, go yeah. yeah all right well um like uh so we were talking about the copeland family stuff and uh i was just wanted to read from where mcgowan talks about the copelands in a uh, weird scenes Totally. And then kind of tie that back into the pussy riot stuff we were talking about, Dimitri. Absolutely. Okay. So um, 
McGowan, he talks about, you know, all these different bands uh, that started coming out during the punk and kind of new wave era in the late 70s and early 80s. And he says, all the acts listed above had something in common. In addition to being among the most critically acclaimed and commercially viable of the new artists, all of them owned their owed their success, at least in part, to their association with one or more members of the Copeland clan. The patriarch of that clan, Miles Axe Copeland Jr., was something of a legend in Western intelligence circles. At the outbreak of World War II, the former working musician was magically transformed into one of the founding members of the OSS. During the war years, while he was stationed in the UK, he met Elizabeth Lorraine Addy, a British intelligent asset, then assigned to the Special Operations Executive. Lorraine's brother, Ian, was also a highly placed British intelligence operative. Miles and Lorraine, he the son of a doctor and she the son of a prominent, the daughter of a prominent neurosurgeon, were married in the UK on September 25th, 1942. After the war, the two moved to Washington, D.C., where Miles worked alongside other intelligence heavyweights like Wild Bill Donovan to form the Central Intelligence Agency. For the next several decades, Copeland would play key roles in various nefarious activities throughout the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. In 1947, he was dispatched to Damascus, Syria, to serve as the CIA station chief and to orchestrate a series of coups that resulted in power being consolidated in the military and national security state. And he talks about um, the, the, their uh, uh, sons being born, the first of their sons being born in Syria. Yeah, Miles Copeland uh, III, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm going to skip ahead here. And he says in 1976, Miles, uh, the son, Miles, gave up his magazine record company and booking agency partnership and started over as an agent, manager, producer and record and record company for numerous new punk and new wave acts that would soon emerge as some of the very brightest stars on the new musical horizon. Copeland launched several new record labels, including Illegal Records, Deptford Fun City Records, Step Forward Records and New Bristol Records. An executive produced the first film dedicated to promoting the new scene, Erg, a music war. Um, and before I go on, I just want to say, so you had the Erg, a music war in the, in the late 70s. Then Decline of Western Civilization, I believe, came out in 79 um, or maybe 1980. It was filmed in 79, I think came yeah. out in 81. Yeah. Okay. And then an interesting thing about, about this is that, so... Penel, I was I was telling you, Dimitri, Penelope Spheris directed the uh, first decline of Western civilization, mm -hmm. and she also directed um, the decline of Western civilization part two. Now, I don't know about part one, but I have been I have found out recently that parts of um, the second one were actually kind of staged. So there's two really famous parts of the second one. There's one mm -hmm. where she's interviewing Ozzy Osbourne in his kitchen and he's cooking. And then there's another one where she's interviewing a musician. I can't remember his name, but he's drunk and cool. And his mom is watching him drink. And it's like this really tragic scene. And um, the, both of those things were like her idea. Like she told Ozzy that they should do an interview while he was cooking breakfast and he should like wear a robe and stuff. And then like the second one was like her suggestion of like, well, we should, you know, what do you, do you like to like hang out in your pool or what? And he was like, yeah, you know, and she was like the one who was like, oh, you can go ahead and drink during the interview if you want to. Like, and it, 
I don't know if anything like that happened in the first one or not, but it begs the question. And then also Penelope Spheris directed Wayne's World, which really? was obviously, yeah, which was obviously based on a, uh, a SNL sketch. Well, Fear uh, famously appeared on Saturday Night Live in a in a performance that turned into like a little riot in the studio in the New York police department had to get called to come like break up these like punks that were like destroying uh whatever the studio you know that that snl is filmed in wow which i i thought that was kind of an interesting connection and then of course also you have the copelands in the uk at this time and then you have um you know sex pistols make their big tv debut and it's like a it's like a you know it's the thing the 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 events that kind of put punk on the map you know, where these big TV, you know, <laughs> appearances and you have all these interesting things kind of to, to, to put them in, in context, you know, that kind of get left out of the story. Yeah. You know, and I, I you know, um, and I'm going to go on with, uh, with uh, McGowan here. He says, you know, Copeland's office soon became the headquarters for the most influential fanzine of the era, Sniffin' Glue. In 1979, Copeland and Jerry Moss, the head of AMC Records, launched International Records Syndicate, Inc., better known as IRS Records. The label quickly became home to many of the most influential new wave acts. In 83, Miles became the only music producer to be given his own show on the Upstart MTV network. Uh, IRS Records presents The Cutting Edge, which ran through 1987 and served to, not surprisingly, primarily promote Copeland's acts. Copeland was also given his own primetime television show in the UK, Miles Copeland's England. The program was widely viewed as being pro-conservative party and pro-capitalist and was reportedly a favorite of then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) A repeat showing of the short-lived series was canceled amid complaints it would have undue influence on pending elections in the country. So, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about there's a, this sort of libertarian, almost like Reaganite strain to, to punk that a lot of people either ignore or maybe even try to, you know, play down as like not really being much of an influence. But, you know, if you look at who was pr- producing some of these early acts and stuff, they certainly were, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at Miles My- Copeland III produced The Cramps. Which, you know, from that quote earlier was, you know, the girl was like posing in front of like a Nazi white nationalist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In in Florida, of all places. And and just loved like how white the Ramones were, you know. Yeah. And and well, and how they how they represented, you know, American suburbanites who apparently (laughs) were being underrepresented at that time <laughs> apparently you know? deeply underrepresented yeah in, yeah and like a you know existentially uh you know yeah world historical uh degree yeah and so i like to mcgowan he points out that stork copeland uh joined the police or uh, started the police yeah and uh to kind of cap off his, his passage here he says in 2002 stork copeland played briefly in a reconstituted version of the doors alongside founding members Ray Manzarek and Bobby Krieger. Mm. Copeland's former bandmate, Andy Summers, who was a decade older than Stork and Sting, had been on the Laurel Canyon scene back when the original Doors were playing the Sunset Strip. As he wrote in Rolling Stone in July 2007, in 1968, he was, quote, living in Laurel Canyon and going to the Sunset Strip every night. 
Briefly a member of Eric Burden and the Animals at that time, Summers had been one of the regulars at the log cabin, which is the part of, it is the property that Frank Zappa lived at for a That's time right. that, that the Manson family also uh, occupied and that a character McGowan mentions in the book, Vito Palakis, who was kind of a, a cited as creating hippie fashion. The freak uh, also, culture, yeah. Yeah, exactly. also stayed at for a time. Hmm. And uh, I wanted to talk about all this stuff uh, to kind of put the Pussy Riot thing in context, which is that... Um, so Pussy Riot became kind of popular in... There are Russian punk bands. Uh, I'm not sure if they're technically still together or not anymore. The, there's some incarnation of them that is still together, but I don't know if like the two main girls, uh yeah. Nadia Tolokanova, I, I think. Um yeah. and then the other one, uh Masha forgetting her name, but the article that you sent to me about how she was uh yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh well <laughs> no, yeah. And 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 um what's interesting to me about Pussy Riot is that oh so, yeah they're a Russian punk band and i remember see back when i was in high school they got kind of popular famous mm -hmm. and for supposedly standing up to Putin. yeah i remember right. and um the they got put prayer. in jail for i guess a couple of years because they uh they organized this kind of artsy fartsy protest in, the, in an orthodox church mm -hmm. um and it was just funny whenever I, whenever I was researching this, I found that that article I sent you. It was from the L.A. Times, and it says, uh, first, the other members of the band released a new single online, Putin Lights Up the Fires. I think this is from when they were uh, arrested. And it says, uh, the Guardian newspaper in England compiled clips and stills for an accompanying video, and the song could be a post-sentencing rallying cry for the millions of music fans and free speech advocates following the case. The song evokes the trashy minimalism of 70s UK punks crass with the urgency of young women who suspect that speaking their minds might result in a brutal prison sentence. In a later announcement, the U.S. State Department issued an official message of concern over Friday's verdict. Department spokeswoman Victoria Newland said that, quote, the United <laughs> States is concerned about both the verdict and the disproportionate sentences handed down by a Moscow court in the case against the members of the band Pussy Riot and the negative impact on freedom of expression in Russia. We urge Russian authorities to review this case and ensure that the right to freedom of expression is upheld. And um, it just reminded me so much of um, whenever the uh, the supposed uprising was happening in cuba earlier this year mm -hmm. there was there was an interesting kind of um part of that which was that uh, uh there were programs that the national endowment for democracy uh cultivated which were an ex which were uh, uh to empower cuban hip-hop artists as leaders and there was there was a tweet by Marco Rubio where Marco Rubio said, uh, for those new to the issue of the hashtag Cuba protests, we are witnessing, uh, they were started by artists, not politicians. The song Patria y Vida powerfully explains how young Cubans feel. And its release was so impactful, you will go to jail if you get caught playing it in Cuba. Now, mm -hmm. um, um, and then on the National Endowment for Democracy site, uh, I found this from an article by Alan McLeod uh, from Mint Press News. Uh, 
Uh, I found out this information from there, but he he cited a, a, a National Endowment for Democracy web, part of the website that talks about all this. It, it says, uh, to empower Cuban artists is to promote citizen participation in social change. The group will carry out workshop, cultural exchanges, and artistic events. During its hip hop uh, summit in Colombia, it will promote South to South collaboration and invite artists from around the world to share their experiences of social transformation. So, you know, in what, in talking about all these things, you know, they seem, I guess, kind of uh, all over the place. But I mean, if you think about it, it's like you have a precedent of a family that is very well connected to Western intelligence agencies, you know, owning and controlling, um, record labels and, and uh, media outlets for this burgeoning, you know, supposedly anti-establishment uh, movement um, back in the 70s that has ideological threads running through it, which align with the Thatcher-Reagan, you know, kind of counter-revolution that was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And that appeals to a lot of the same suburbanite white, white people that those, you know, movements uh, appealed to. And then you have a similar kind of moment where you have, you know, pussy, pussy riot. And now listen, I'm not trying to say that Putin or the Orthodox church or like, you know, socialists or whatever, but I'm just saying, you know, I would, I, I wouldn't put it past the, the United States to look at artists in Russia, you know, as potential assets for, you know, their, their kind of interests there. Oh, of course. And, um, just one last point on the Pussy Riot thing is that they were part of a uh, of a uh, group before they were in Pussy Riot. I forget the name of the group, but it, its first its first um, big event was actually thought up by an Israeli citizen. He, I think he has dual citizenship in Israel and Russia. But okay, so were you were you referring to Vina, the anarchist art collective that they yeah, were in yeah. before Pussy Riot? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's okay. So was that uh, Oleg Verotnikov? Um, I think is uh, the not, founder think, of that. Well, yeah, well, that's that's the founder, but um, there was a guy that that uh, helps them orchestrate their one of their first big public like displays. That was like basically them like having an orgy. With oh like yeah yeah they chicken. that's yeah it was uh yeah. it, it was called um let me see i have it right here it is called fuck for the air puppy bear with an exclamation point in 2008 uh the day before the election of dmitry medvedev um five couples including i think the two main um uh Tolokonikova uh, was one of them, uh, had public sex in Moscow's uh, Timuryazov State Museum of Biology. And yeah. I guess they got disciplinary uh, action against them, but they didn't get arrested. And yeah. anyway, yeah, well, okay. the, the guy that came up with that is, a, is, is like an Israeli citizen, which I thought was kind of interesting. interesting. I can't find his name. Yeah, I, I, I mean... <laughs> I'm having yeah. all these technical difficulties. No, it's all good. Um, I think that, yeah, no, they, I mean, Pussy Riot kind of represents to me the, my kind of transformation of punk and how I looked at it. Cause I remember yeah. that kind of happened like right after like Occupy and it was when like the Arab Spring was still going on right. and there was like this yeah. weird era in kind of the like post recession and the mm-hmm. early Obama years where 
there mm-hmm. was almost like this like techno punk like optimistic energy that like yeah well and yeah, from what i understand that's also that's also the era where weave was getting really gassed up as like a, a mm-hmm. free speech warrior oh yeah and he was on rt he was being like lauded yeah. on rt and stuff yeah. uh glenn greenwald was hanging glenn out with greenwald him at parties laura poitras um a lot of people yeah. that would go on to be re- rather prominent and you know, for those uh, Molly Crab Apple was a big fan. Molly Crab, uh, I mean, talk she about the she, Occupy to Weave pipeline. Um, well, yeah, you she know, was, she just she just she just helped AOC with the uh, Green New Deal video. I year. bet she did. I bet. She, yeah, yeah. Same she, energy. She I'm gonna say it. Same energy. And yeah, you know, Molly Crab Apple went from being like an Occupy influencer to being a kind of like pro Pussy Riot like kind of twitter online like twitter yeah, activist and, and, and also you had vice coming out and i remember you know when i was in high school vice was like a huge deal with all my friends like oh my god would, yeah yeah they would like get high as hell and like watch vice <laughs> well, also talk about like the punk rock like conservative crossover it, yeah. it basically vice embodies that like who embodies yeah. that better than like gavin mcginnis but honestly well, shane smith yeah too. and vice had a lot to do with kind of making that more palatable like there's really two forms of that that started emerging kind of halfway through the 2010s you have just the extremely aggressive version of it that like came out on 4chan and later 8chan mm-hmm that Gavin kind of aligned himself with and you have kind of the vice vice as it kind of exists now which was kind of taking that same energy but evolving it more of like a neocon direction yeah <laughs> which not yeah. to say that Gavin and them are you know not necessarily neocons but I'm just saying like well I mean no vice, he was he was like a fan of like George W. Bush neocon, yeah, he was like hardcore that, neocon yeah that's that's another thing that gets lost on a lot of people is that like all right people are not necessarily at odds or the fact that they get they present how many neocons are Jewish. <laughs> yeah. But as far as the uh, you know, and, and and also that like Bush didn't have his, like you were just saying, um, college like uh, you know Bush had 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 fanboys in the punk scene as well. You know that were like doing as like a contrarian thing. Vincent Gallo was kind of similar. Oh know, yeah, you know he loved George W. Bush. Bush. He, yes. Even uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I remember them giving interviews in the 2000s where they, they just talked sympathetic to in Bush. a very punk rock way. Like I just, I'm so sick of fucking Hollywood liberals. I just go to a party yes. and be like, I yes. love George W. Yeah. Bush and everyone's like, eh. Which is kind of like, I know, having just gone through the Trump era living in Los Angeles, like a a little part of me gets it, but also like, that's even worse to be like, yeah, George W. Bush rocks. Well, and I mean, South Park too is is a big part of that whole like wave of like, and and also like Penn and Teller bullshit, you know, there was this whole wave (laughs) of like, just kind of lib, kind of a more consciously like right-wing libertarianism running through punk kind of that i think still runs through it because i started i started noticing personally probably about like in that same time i mentioned earlier probably about five years ago there i knew a guy who was a a, he was like called himself like a libertarian punk you know and would like vote for the libertarian party and stuff Mm -hmm. and he ended up becoming like a raging trump supporter (laughs) because that's not too surprising to me i mean it is like the punk thing to do that's the thing in the culture today trump is almost like a new punk rock as uh, we've heard that many times uh paul joseph watson was the the coiner of that (laughs) right that conservatism is new is the new punk rock well in a way i mean honestly like if you 
if you go back to like the way Jimmy Gestapo acts on the Donahue show 1986, and then you look at the way that Donald Trump would act in relation to the media, like, you know, decades later, you can see a certain synchronicity there in terms of yeah, for sure. like Trump it's... having a punk energy. And right, and trolling, you know, trolling, yeah, Steve, basically. Like, Steve Bannon is on the record saying that whenever he was working, when he was working um, on World of Warcraft, it was seeing you know the rootless white males that would spend all day playing video games. I'm sure Brock play. Pierce like, and Mark Collins Rector could show him all kinds yeah, of uh, ways yeah, to get in Steve touch Bannon with rootless white Milo. young males, especially. That's why yeah. Steve Bannon loved Milo Yiannopoulos and like uh, yeah. you know, brought him on to like cover Gamergate or whatever because he thought he could like you know represent the Gamergate contingent. But uh, yeah, I mean, like it's the same thing, you know. Like yeah, like it's definitely true that like. Uh, whether like it's supporting Trump or something even more outrageous. Like there's tons of things that are even more outrageous than that that you could do. Like, you know, yeah. uh, ironically talk about how you hate Arabs or you're a Zionist or right. something like that, you know, or like, uh, talk well, also punk rock will certainly be a Nazi. Like, well, okay, yeah. That, that doesn't mean that's wrote, good by virtue wrote, of being contrarian, you know, like it's not just because, that will aggravate like people yeah. who are shitty doesn't mean that like that's good like saying to someone like i want to like kill and like you know rape your family or something like you know that would Absolutely. piss off henry kissinger said to him but that doesn't mean that it's good because it would make him upset but that's well, like, well, like, you know, is, it, yeah. yeah yeah it's like minor threat wrote guilty of being white and that was like a punk animal. oh right yeah it was like that. And, 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 and he, he was in an interview and they said, why did you write that? And he said, it's an anti-racist song. <laughs> <laughs> right, because but they, I, I wrote like, it as a concern about like protest. reverse racism. Yeah. Well, yeah, like why didn't Black Flag have white minority? Well, I, yeah. That and, one's a little um, different though, right? I forget. Yeah, <laughs> and, and well, and also you got to look at this too, though. Slayer later covered Guilty of Being White and towards the end of their version of it, they changed it to Guilty of Being Right. <laughs> white is right i guess so and you got to think slayer with all the the nazi kind of overtones well, <laughs> as as all yeah, the kids it's said funny, on funny like the persecution complex like but i mean it's very teenage like yeah. you know to a teenager like there definitely were many people like especially like in you know environments where like perspectives from people who are not white or like you know aren't generally represented like people like you know they want to believe in like equality and fairness so like they like you know if someone has like an aversion towards like white people or white ideas you know like yeah. or uh points to whiteness as like a negative cultural force yeah. like they're gonna be like how hey, is that fair like you know if i said the same thing you know like why is there no white history month or something why is there yeah, no yeah. you know like uh that type of thing like you know it's very very teenage but and i guess you Absolutely. know uh it seems from the lyrics of the Minor Threat song that the, the lyricist was 19 because he talks about <laughs> right. having served 19 years for the crime of being white. Right. Um, well, and you want to hear that, something interesting about Minor Threat, too. Ian Mackay's father was it was in the presidential motorcade when JFK got shot. What? Really? So, uh, yeah, like it's, it even says on the Wikipedia here, it says... Uh, what did his father do? His father was a writer for the Washington Post, first as a White House reporter, then as a religion specialist. In his capacities as a journalist at the White House press corps, his father was in the presidential motorcade when John F. Kennedy was killed in 1963. Wow. 
which you know again not necessarily a deep political connection but it's kind of interesting it, it's an interesting one to point out because he I, was a what specialist he a was a, uh, a a religion specialist of religion and what religion it says that uh the senior mckay remains active with the socially progressive saint stephen's episcopal episcopal huh yeah episcopalian <laughs> in dc uh, we're always suspicious of episcopalians Post. around here yeah, yeah, and well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's like pra- it's not even a religion. Oh, hey, and, uh, check this out. McKay's paternal grandmother, uh, oh, sorry, excuse me, his grandfather was Milton McKay, also a magazine writer, as well as an executive with the Office of War Information. Interesting. Oh, well, I guess he was hmm. a specialist in, yeah, like just writing about religion in general for the WAPO. Yeah. Okay. I say yeah. Ian McKay in general is an, an interesting kind of character to me because he's he's also responsible for kind of like alt rock in a lot of ways and I just I never got really involved. In he that. was Fugazi, right? Yeah, Fugazi had a pretty big influence on a lot of like, later, like yeah some grunge bands and later like alt yeah general and kind of some indie rock. I mean, that's the other thing is that like the punk ethos and like the punk attitude like broke out of the generic boundaries of punk by like the late 80s, early 90s and ended up basically influencing all of like alternative rock in the 90s. So even if you weren't like a punk, like, I don't know, I went back back to to, like do it yourself DIY, you know, that can go two ways. that can be like we're going to kind of create a, uh, you know, I was reading an article said that, that or a essay that was called Did Punk Matter? And it pointed out that there was an element to punk where there was kind of a a kind of if you want to put it in like Gramscian terms, kind of like a counter hegemony developed. But at the same time, a lot of kids just took and do it yourself in this extremely individualist direction, <laughs> you know, that wasn't yeah. dissimilar course- from the hippie kind of self-actualization model of like when i was growing up was like the heyday you know and long island was a big hub for this as well of like a emotional hardcore of emo music uh which i think you know ian mckay helped produce like rites of spring and things like that and and fugazi i think was a big influence on like uh early emo uh yeah definitely and the you know then in the heyday of emo yeah which is of course not like you know at least there was a pretense of like politics and punk and there's some good you know there's some punk bands that have good politics generally and like bring kids to political awareness of topics that otherwise they wouldn't be like i remember the band uh against all authority which is like a punk ska band very like cringe name uh and you know i feel like they're just like anarchists or whatever and like you know uh but their lyrics like are about like the the cops and like how like and police uh you know abuse of power and about like the genocide right. of native americans and things like that you yeah. know even though there can be a certain like vanity or just mm-hmm. performativity to the awareness of those things in the punk community like that's still like yeah. generally good politics but of course sure. yeah some of it like in the case of emo it just becomes like about like you know, your high school girlfriend oh. or like whatever, you know, like being inward, navel gazing. Yeah. <laughs> Self-absorbed. Know, like, just totally yeah. apolitical and just like about like, I hope you die on the ice. Well, and, and it can even you get, know. it can even get specifically kind of fascist. Like um, one of my favorite yeah, bands sure. actually is a band called Earth Crisis that are notorious for being just like the uber, like straight edge band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they, they were part of a whole wave of like, straight edge in the 90s that kind of developed into forming like crews and beating up drug addicts and drug dealers and stuff like that and uh, it was a whole thing um 
there was the i don't know if y'all have ever come across him but there's a youtuber named finn mckinty who's like an old hardcore kid and he used to have a blog where he'd write about a lot of that stuff like living through that in the 90s and he was part of a crew at one point and later started doing drugs <laughs> but earth crisis it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the, the sometimes there's good political messages because they wrote it they have a song on it on on uh, one of their records called unseen holocaust that's about you know, the genocide of Native Americans and indigenous people. But then on that same album, they have a song called Firestorm and the lyrics to Firestorm, there's a one lyric that is so like Reaganite, it's crazy. It's like, um, it's a, a, a demons, it's about, it's about, you know, basically beating drug addicts to death. And it's like, Born addicted, beaten and neglected, families torn apart, destroyed and abandoned. Children sell their bodies from their high, they fall to drown. Now, here it is right here. Demons crazed by greed, cut by standards down. A chemically tainted welfare generation. <laughs> Absolute it. complete uh, moral degeneration. <laughs> well, that reminds you know, me it's of just uh, crazy. That's well, like Iran Contra was uh, going on, but like, what are they most pissed off about? Well, they, they, were, they, they were around during the Clinton Actually, oh okay is, interesting but even but even then you know, yeah definitely. clinton definitely dabbled in some of that stuff too like work fair you know well, but, i mean uh, he, are you he he helped consolidate a lot of those regular yeah, policies for sure. you know, yeah. And, and rhetoric you know he, he he used that same rhetoric about the era of big being government being on welfare and you know, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah um very much he was moral degeneration in every way and you know like beyond at heart like practically speaking and also like uh you know uh in ideology but uh i was gonna ask are you familiar with like the hard line uh movement yeah. like yeah, uh yeah. Yeah, I had some awareness of that because um, it was like you know what is the hardline movement? It was hardline like a, is kind of like what Earth Crisis was sort of a part like that that newer wave of straight edge that was just like very yeah. and, and uh, right yes they were there was another band it. called Vegan Reich yes right vegan yeah, right which is an amazing name and yeah. uh, that had a a guy I don't remember what his his original name was but he eventually became Muslim uh, yeah. after a fashion. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Sean Mutaki, I believe is his uh, name. Uh, yeah. And he, yeah, like it became kind of like a vegan Muslim, like, you know, sort of weird, uh, like fusionist, like pseudo quasi fascist type bands. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but prior to that, they had all sorts of like uh, incarnations. Uh, yeah, Vegan Reich being one of them. Yeah, well, um, and uh, Judge was a little bit earlier, but they had an influence on a lot of those hardline bands because they were one of the first straight edge bands, uh, as far as I know, that was like basically just like, let's just kill drug addicts and drug dealers. <laughs> like, let's like, not do even try to, like, horror. Yeah, because you had like, you know, youth of today and stuff, and they were a lot more positive. They were like, let's try to kind of talk people out of doing point out you know how bad it is for you then like you had bands like judge come along that were like no this is a war we need to like annihilate the opposition like through like street violence yeah yeah Yeah. now uh circling back around to you know some punk bands uh maybe didn't have like the worst political messages there's one that stands out i think and i feel like if we don't we want to make this something, you know, not make this a total uh, punk bash. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Bringing up, but okay. So the Dead Kennedys. I just noticed this uh, this morning. Somebody had posted on Twitter um, an article about the Beach Boys, but this article 
quotes a passage from the song uh, Kinky Sex Makes the World Go Round <laughs> and from yeah. Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. Now, now Dead yeah. Kennedys are interesting. I think we can talk. You found some interest or uh, there, there's been some interesting information oh, yeah. about Jello Biafra yeah, that, yeah. that has come up and maybe like his family background. But, you know, there is San Francisco punk band that generally are regarded as like legitimately like left wing like left right, anarchist and like very political and i i mean yeah. i remember i they, had they like wrote a about diane feinstein kind of before that was amazing. oh yeah and jerry brown i mean they, yeah, the california yeah. uber alice like calling jerry yeah. brown like a liberal nazi basically um but i think okay so there's the little passage here this is actually a very interesting song uh that is supposed to be like a conversation between the secretary of defense and the British prime minister about starting another war to promote economic growth. Right. But there's a passage here that, that this writer uh, quoted. Uh, now don't worry about those demonstrators, just pump up your drug supply. So many people have hooked themselves on heroin and amphetamine since we took over. It's just like Vietnam. We had everybody so busy with LSD. They never got too strong, kept the war functioning just fine. It's easy. We've got our college kids so interested in beer. They don't even care if we start manufacturing germ bombs again, put a nuclear stockpile in their backyard. They wouldn't even know what it looked like. So how about it? I mean, look, war is money. So, ooh, yeah, you know, there, yeah, there's actually <laughs> kind of true. I mean, yeah, they, they seem to know what they were talking about. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, that, that that's the thing is that like, I don't mean to just shit on punk either, you know, cause it's been a big part. It's been a big part of my life. Like, you know, and obviously had a big impact on me. Um, it's just, it's always hard whenever you kind of like, but you find out things about something that, you know, such a big part of your life. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and mean, almost every of, episode, uh, almost yeah, every yeah. music episode we've done uh, on subliminal jihad has been the result of like that kind of painful experience of being like, what? Like, yeah, not, not that I, not that I was like super into every single person I later have called sure. us, but a lot of them, I mean, I think like the doors, like a lot of the LA, like 60s. Yeah. Bands, well, I used like, to like, I used to love um, the germs a lot. But oh, then like yeah. when I actually started reading their like lyrics and kind of what Darby crash was all about, it's like, damn, like what is like, I, there's a, there's a germs biopic about Darby Crash and the entire first like 10 minutes is just him talking about how badass Hitler was. In public. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, okay. yeah, yeah, he's a Nazi right. skull. Actually, the documentary does have a, a scene in that where he cooks breakfast while like mm -hmm. being interviewed. So maybe that yeah, was yeah, stage yeah, too. Yeah, um, and he's got like, yeah, people were drawing like swastikas on him uh, with like black marker uh, yeah. during one of his performances in uh, yeah. the decline of Western civilization. He's one of those people whose name I hear about all the time is like, oh, like Darby Crash, like yeah. oh, it's so tragic it, and cool. There's a less, like, yeah, there's a less kind of intense um intensely like fascistic band i mean they're not fascistic at all really as far as i know but um, millions of dead cops was a big band for me when yeah i, was I remember kid. millions of dead cops and it's yeah. it's funny because i was talking about this with somebody and they pointed out they have a song where they like make fun of like china in a kind of like backhandedly racist way <laughs> hmm. which is just funny because they have all these songs about you know anti-racism and the cops being bullshit yeah that i mean that's the problem is that it, it like even when sometimes they make a good point they mm -hmm. their purility and their humor and, and the, like the yeah. knee-jerk kind of like adolescent like need to shock yeah kind of ends up undercutting that so what you're left with is people like ironically saying 
like whack shit. Yeah. Like bad things. Well, and you know, yeah. that kind of gets into what we were talking about with Gigi Allen as well. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's so take I, this all the way down to the right. Let's go right down to the gutter uh, yeah, as far yeah. as it'll go. That was interesting. You're, I didn't I didn't realize Todd Phillips like, like started his career. Style. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we watched the what uh, or I watched Hated uh Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies, which was uh Todd Phillips like NYU student film. You know, uh, so I guess this is like the punk to Joker pipeline. <laughs> and um, well, and Joker it, is very punk. I mean, he is kind of like the Joker. Like he just lives yeah. off K- this guy. And I feel like it's another name. I, I never really like listened to G.G. Allen or wasn't really aware of him before watching this the other day. But it's another name where people go like, oh, like G.G. Allen. He was so interesting and like so yeah. cool. And like it was a good documentary, like very accomplished for like a 19 year old. But like he is repulsive <laughs> like, yeah. i'm sorry like gg allen is like one of my favorite parts of that documentary is when that really fucking sleazy guy with the big glasses that gg allen is living with is doing the interview and he's talking about all the crazy sex shit he's seen and he's thought and he says his friend's name who's like pissing in gg allen's mouth yeah and then he's like and then he's like oh wait dude i probably shouldn't say her name <laughs> But they left it and in the movie. And then they just leave it in the document. <laughs> like, Damn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, the the actually the creepiest thing about that documentary were like the horn rimmed hipster like like fans of Gigi <laughs> yeah. Allen that clearly yeah. were like like hip like college uh-huh. kids like in New York, but like saw like yeah I like Gigi Allen, but like yeah. I'm intellectual. It's like the, these were the guys right. that like would become like Pitchfork or like magazine. Hipster, yeah, and it was it was thing, it was yeah. a kind of detachment from it of like the guy relaying how Gigi Allen keeps promising that like he's gonna kill himself on Halloween at a show and yeah. kind of saying with like a smirk that's like yeah you know but people think he's he's going to do it one of these days, like all excited about it. It's just like, what the fuck's wrong with you, dude? Like, well, and, and just, then they filmed the, they filmed Gigi Allen's funeral and there. You know, I haven't watched that footage in a long time, but if I remember correctly, there were like people like, I don't think anyone pissed on his corpse or anything, but there were people like, <laughs> whipping it off his corpse. And, like, <laughs> I think he had an open uh, casket, but like Allen's no pants. Wouldn't go so low as to piss on his corpse. Um, yeah. But, well, yeah. you know, it just i mean yeah it's like he was like shoving bananas up his butt like yeah, during and, performances uh, like well, vomit and, like and eating licking a, his shit like shitting on the ground and like wow, eating the, it the like, amazing atheist did the same thing the banana <laughs> thing uh i wonder if you got that from him um you brought up in the in the dms dimitri too the the how interesting it is that his name was jesus christ allen and his dad his crazy dad saw him as like a messiah figure Oh yeah, that was really bizarre. Yeah. They didn't they didn't Very get strange. too deep into that. Um, even though they interviewed his brother, who has like an exaggerated Hitler mustache. Yes, yes. Which is okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but his dad was like a crazy. I don't know what denomination, but he was like a crazy like evangelical Christian who might have been somewhat insane. And he named Gigi Jesus Christ Allen because he had a vision where like Jesus appeared and, and told him that. Gigi would be like a messiah figure and he raised them kind of in like rural vermont in like a log cabin and it it sounds like that was a fucked up 
like home to grow up in that yeah. probably did yeah. a real number on him. And, yeah, and then we were we were talking about uh, his friendship with Gacy as well. Yeah. Gigi Allen was good, pretty good friends with Gacy and went and visited him in prison all the time. And and his friends said that like, well, you know, they asked what would they talk about? And they said, well, probably like sex. Like he said, you couldn't <laughs> have a conversation. You couldn't go visit Gacy and like not talk about sex. And yeah, there, yeah. it probably like had sex acts involving children. Right. What the yeah. fuck? I mean, cool. sure. like, yeah, yeah, what the fuck? Like, you know, like yeah. th that's so weird about this. It's like the the need to like flex and just be like shocking and bleh and just like yeah. mm -hmm. whatever to like scare like the evangelicals on television that you see or something or that yeah. are in your town, like leads to this point of like, yeah, he was hanging out with serial killer talking about fucking kids. <laughs> well, and you know, Gigi Allen, it, it goes kind of back to when we were talking about Trump being sort of the ultimate punk in a way. You have the the crossover of all these things with Gigi Allen in the 90s where you have the shot you have actual literal punk rock taken to its most extreme then you have him going on all the daytime talk shows obviously the environment that kind of would later lead to reality tv which is where Trump you know and then you have yeah. you know this whole more the, the moral dimensions of like Gigi Allen being such a like morally reprehensible person but then like the culture war flex of like dunking on evangelical christians is so like ingrained in certain like hipsters minds that they like have to reflexively support him because yes. that's like critical support for gg allen yeah exactly yeah, yeah, and it's, it's exactly. Just, like, really amazing yeah but uh, like, you know you have really yeah, it's it's one of those things where like it's uh underappreciated as a cultural force i think because it's like so like ridiculous but i really and like it also deals with like uh i guess the millennial generation in a way whose like sort of political identity is still uh in a way sort of incohate mm -hmm. but uh the like the impact of like being online and like that sort of like uh like anti-evangelical like radicalization is so like politically like determinative and i mean like yeah like yeah. fuck like evangelicals like they're annoying and like yeah. especially like the representation of them like on network television or like stuff like that is like you know uh an even more annoying version of like you know the very uh, uh not only annoying but like pernicious and like uh you know uh, uh politically like uh, uh repugnant reality of yeah. uh, a lot of what evangelicals espoused and uh, particularly like the Iraq war comes to mind. Uh, but really the eighties so, to the 2000s, those three decades, yeah. they really wielded yeah, like you, a I mean, so much, like the, so much hardcore the, punk was being kind of like opposed to Reagan in aesthetics, but then like ideologically having certain overlap yes the, and like, i think that ideals of the Reagan administration. And I think exactly. that, that is something that I think, you know, yeah, like the, in a way, like the things that like are opposed most fiercely about like the evangelicals are things like superficial things, like the fact that they're like religious, you know, like something mm -hmm. that like almost really like almost everyone in the world is like, or at least a, an overwhelming plurality of people are religious. But like because yeah. people had that negative experience with evangelicals, like uh, growing up, like whether they were are from a family that was religious or uh, and, you know, evangelicals like LDS, like, all you know, all sorts of adjacent things where they were in a family that was religious or they just saw religious people like around them or grew up in a community that had evangelicals in them. Then, like, yeah. you know, they have de devoted themselves to the idea that like the worst, like and the most like, you know, politically important 
uh, thing to like oppose. And like the worst thing for humanity is like simply this vague idea of like being religious, which right. is like one of the most amorphous concepts ever. And right. like in no way like universally manifests like, you know, the real like things that are awful about the evangelicals are the particular political ideas that they uh, advocated and like uh, stood for in their context. But like for some reason, like the specifics of the situation have been totally just voided. And what is left is like the idea that like it's like, you know, uh, this very, very broad ideological thing of like, you know, yeah, let's be like nihilistic. Let's like be like, uh, you know, not pearl clutchy about these things, like, you know, the superficial aspects of, of evangelical religiosity, even like evangelicals don't like uh, drinking, you know, or something yeah. like, you know, uh, yeah. or like uh, excessive drinking. So therefore, like excessive drinking is virtuous and you're prudish if you like, you know, are uh, find that to be like self-destructive or a waste of time. Or if you yeah. feel like there's any like political value to like not being a, like basically a borderline alcoholic or that there's something virtuous to this. Um, right. or, or like, you know, evangelicals like clutch their pearls when they hear curse words. So therefore like there's something uh, revolutionary about like uh, cursing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or even like, you know, exactly. Like, uh, so just like these sort of like meaningless performative, like provocative statements, you know, uh, are yeah and it even gets giving us to the point of like you know being like a nazi or something but like weirdly enough like that is pretty much that's the part that it becomes like consistent with it where it's like oh yeah like well you want to hear something provocative like i believe in like killing every single arab <laughs> like that's what they also believe in right. like so like what right. is going on you know but well it's, and, you know i'm glad you bring that up because there's there's one last I know we've been going for a minute, but there's one last thing I wanted to read really quick um, from, mm -hmm. and it's not really a, a historical thing or really even like a philosophical thing. It's a, uh, a, a, a cocky duty who is a someone I follow on Twitter and a, a fellow uh, WordPress blogger and someone I've respected for a long time. Um, wrote wrote about kind of being in a little anarchist friend group. I'm not sure at what time, probably in the 2010 sometime, but... Um, oh, yeah. Is this the anarchqueering um, yeah, article? Anarcho yeah, anarcho-queering total destroy is kind of what he sarcastically titled the... Yeah, piece. yeah. He wrote about it, and it just struck me because it was so, it was so like, similar to my own experience that it was, like, freaky. Because it was just, like, so much how friends of mine have been, you know, throughout my life. And it's, just, it's a short passage at the beginning. And he says, buying property is a revolutionary activity if you invite your friends to be your tenants. <laughs> Cooking together yeah. and enjoying each other's company and reaching consensus on whose turn it is to buy the toilet paper is revolutionary. The state is corroded every time a shoplifted stick of butter is used to cook some eggs or chickens. If when you reach for something on a high shelf, you're hit by the smell of your own armpits, your own armpits, you're definitely contributing to the struggle to upend capitalism's death grip on the planet and free us all from domination and tyranny. The state, any state, is a hydra whose many heads include provisions against drinking in public. <laughs> this is what anarchism means to me after having spent a good amount of time with a bunch of them. Um, my frustration is with what encounters I've had with anarchist thoughts and ideas of praxis were vented in a long Twitter thread recently. And then, you know, the following is an attempt to phrase it all better. Um, 
Yeah, that, that but, definitely uh, resonated with like. He says, uh, he says, from what I've seen of communal living, it seems to boil down into a situation where you have a bunch of roommates and you actually know them. You pay <laughs> rent, you have a landlord and have to scurry off to whatever way of making money you have. I'm sure there are some people out there living more radical free existences, but the anarchists I've known seem to live normal lives that have been relabeled and aestheticized into quote unquote freedom with a few patches and smelly socks. And, uh, you know, the rest of this article is very good. I'm not going to read it, but it's, it's, it's about kind of his observation of how gender, you know, similar to the Lance, the, the, the Lester Banks thing, you know, gender relations are pretty much the same, you know, um, there's not really, but, you know, the racial consciousness that's there is really, you know, more, more performative than actually, you know, substantive. Mm -hmm. And that's just was such, so much my experience, uh, you know, in being into punk and hardcore and whatever, you know, if you want to just call it the alternative for, for a long, you know, there was such a strain of anarchism running through it, but that had no real direction to it at all. It was just kind of like living your life is how you're going to. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the the construction of alternativity, I think, yeah. is uh, that essay we had covered about KPFA once uh, right. called it, right. you know, like carving out this space where you can feel like you're resisting, you're raging against the machine and mm -hmm. other shit like that. But you're really just it amounts to a kind of lifestyleism at the end of yeah. the day. And I yeah. think at the worst end of it, going all the way back to like you bringing up Pussy Riot. Because, you know, maybe people could be like, well, what's what's the matter with Pussy Riot? Well, sure. initially, you know, I was kind of sympathetic to like them when I first heard about them in like mm -hmm. the post-Occupy days. And I thought, oh, cool. And yeah, you know, uh, call it and I went to Russia like yeah. in those years, like we traveled yeah, through it, it like and we a, met we met young people that had like yeah. scars on their backs from getting like beaten up during like. The presidential protests like not in a yeah. sus way like we randomly met these people um yeah. uh and <laughs> yeah like we, we were working for, our, we were yeah, like recruiting for victoria newland tour. or yeah. something mm -hmm. no but yeah. like but you know it was a generally agreed uh, that like yeah putin seems out. like a like an asshole like an authoritarian asshole man and like he was beaten up on us just the way that like the lapd came in and rolled up you know the whole occupy camp but then as like yeah. time went on you started to notice people like molly crabapple like really standing for like a no-fly zone over syria and saying yeah. that like we need to stand up with like the maidan protesters in ukraine even though they're alive with like the right sector and shit like that and uh, and so on and so forth these things escalating and then pussy riots like enthusiastic willingness after they got out of prison to become like ned like propaganda mascots mm. for like western lib style bullshit like basically yeah. in russia and yeah. you know like to this point now they're like you know by by the time trump came around they were just making these like really cringy like music videos with like big time you know people well, now, they're, now they're just openly supporting Alexei Navalny <laughs> oh of course yeah right As and, well. and, it's and just the like, uh and the one uh the one pussy riot member is dating like the former oh, yeah. member of like a super fascist like right-wing group yeah we didn't even yeah, get to that yeah. part yet um there's a, a daily beast article um about uh, a member of pussy riot who is dating a a member of it says in the article dating a member of a, of a far-right uh orthodox church aligned group in russia <laughs> that okay. was at they 
I don't I don't think they met at the protest, but they went to like the same protests and were like on off, uh, you know, for suppo- ostensibly pro queer. That's like really amazing. Yeah, like, this is Maria. Like the hollowness yeah. of like some of yeah, the stuff yeah. where it's like you can. You know, uh, it's I funny because throughout the article, she keeps insisting she's like, he's not a homophobe. He just doesn't like it whenever gay people like are outwardly like, you know, doing political <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I mean, Which is actually like, something I read about punks and stuff. Uh, or no, I, I, sorry, it was in that Columbine article uh, about oh, yeah, their yeah. influences that said that like it seemed like a lot of the skinheads like had more. They were more pissed off at, at gay people, like less yes. for their sexual preferences and more for the fact they were like political libs. You know, yeah, like and, that and, was the yeah, real problem and, with and them. That brings it full circle. Um, because what Lester Bang was talking about in that thing we started off with, it mm-hmm. comes full circle in that that Columbine article and the point it makes, which is that youth is not a class. So when you create a cultural consciousness that is rooted in youth opposing the old, you can very quickly go down a reactionary path because. If youth comes along in a time that is supposedly, you know, progressive or socially liberal or whatever, and they look around and say, well, I want to rebel against this, you know, it goes into a reactionary direction. And, you know, you can see Eric Harris uh, and Dylan Klebold as, you know, if they would have hung around until 2003, they probably would have been big 4chan guys. I bet. You know. And me and a friend were talking about them, and 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 he pointed out to me that you know if they would have done what they did in Iraq rather than in a high school in the United States to Iraqis instead of you know white or you know largely white high school students, they would have been seen as heroes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty know? much. And then they would have come back, and like they could have been like stupid poll guys or and like absolutely. you know something like that. Like they could have easy you know and been like. Uh, people who are like out. oh you know like why are you, <laughs> why, are you why are you gatekeeping yeah. Yeah, yeah like why are you gatekeeping veterans you know out yeah, of you know, leftist movements yeah. you know like i was there I, man I, could... <laughs> I was there and i was i was killing arabs and my my general wouldn't let us kill even more of them and that's why we lost iraq yeah exactly yeah. Um, <laughs> do that whole thing yeah you know? they totally yeah i could like i could definitely i mean i feel like there is a big like, we had I mean, hundred Michael Flynn's running the military. We would have we would have completely dominated the Arab world by now, and we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I really think that like this whole like ethos is like very like uh, it, it has like a, a very predominant like cultural influence that like is not a hundred percent appreciated. Like, and I do think that like. Uh, punk is like one big component of it which is you know uh i mean it's just something i've noticed more since like doing the podcast where people will be like wait a minute like you're saying that like this like don't you see that this is just art (laughs) you know or something like that it's like well like you know uh this art is expressing ideas and like the ideas that it's expressing like you know you're maybe saying like oh it's ironically like but it's ironically like fascist or something like yeah don't you understand that like some things are like you know just art or like but it's not like serving anything it's like it's irony isn't like uh you know it, it doesn't uh, it's not productive to any end and it just is like replicating these ideas to the point where like these are the like ends but i think that for whatever reason there is like a deep attachment to the principle that things like that should exist 
that like it is somehow like very valuable like to have like this kind of sort of pointlessly like contrarian uh you know provocative like art that doesn't really you know uh produce anything positive but it's just like maybe i don't know maybe it's something like a fundamentally yeah. liberal where it's like in a liberal society we need to be able to like do satire yeah. or like whatever I, yeah, yeah. But I, well it's like yeah. a constructed space of freedom that like yeah. you let people romp around in and mm -hmm. they can do obscenity they can do pornography they can do uh wear swastikas ironically because this is america and in america yeah, yeah. it's free and you see that running through like yeah like johnny gestapo saying you couldn't do this anywhere but america like yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and the ramones yeah. exactly. are all about american suburban you know yeah, <laughs> right. and I know I, I mentioned it uh, to you, Wub, um, that I was like looking into like a, I'm very interested in like East, Eastern Bloc, like rock music in the 70s yes. and 80s. And there really was an explosion. And there were some really honestly like good bands that I think you could put like toe to toe with any American or British group of that Absolutely. time in places like Poland. Like they had a huge punk underground. And I, I found a kind of documentary um, really hard to find things that are like subtitled in English or translated. Um, mm. So, but like if part of it was in English, but it was just interviewing all these like leading lights of like the underground new wave and punk scenes in Poland, which is like, of course, like going under martial law and stuff like that uh, in the early eighties and how like the orientation of all of these punk people was like anti-communist because like they right. were anti-authority and they were like in perfect kind of ideological sync with like their counterparts um in the west for the most part particularly the more right-wing ones but it also it like it, it it's just interesting also i think it's really like interesting that you pointed out that yeah. this rebellion of youth as a class against the older generation happened when like sort of the the global left was relatively at its like historic zenith in the mid 20th mm -hmm. century yeah. and it's like don't trust anybody over 30 that means every old left person who has experience so it means like yeah. every communist every old school communist yeah. like every yeah, marxist yeah, yeah. like every union organizer well, and, 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 and like basically like people who you could you could accuse of uh of, of being in line with those people so like you know the black panther party right like uh not you know, necessarily an old person group or whatever, but if you're a young, you know, white suburbanite who hates authority and you have, you know, <laughs> a, a black radical asking you maybe to, uh, you know, if you want to join the group or whatever, not join the Black Panthers necessarily, but you have these, these black radicals out there, you know, talking about a dictatorship of the proletariat. And if you want yeah. to join up, you got to maybe so, you know, submit a little bit to somebody who knows more than you about theory and cut you know, your you hair a little bit. Me. Stop uh, doing, maybe, stop smoking so much dope. Maybe try to regulate your drug usage a little bit so you don't get arrested or you don't kill yourself <laughs> you know, before you get even close to authoritarian. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, you know, um, uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely, and and, and yeah. I, it also turns into one of the biggest, one of the biggest things in political consciousness that seems to have developed in America in the 20th century was this concept of authoritarianism versus anti-authoritarianism. Absolutely. Yeah. And rather than anything to do with class. And if you were anti-authoritarian, you were automatically on the right side of history. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it just happens to be <laughs> that like that means that you can never look sim- you can never like be in sympathy with like the entire communist bloc in the world or right. any like third world country that uses any kind of authority to like yeah. control its own. I mean, it's you know, basically resources. like the fundamental idea of liberalism is yeah. the idea of like anti authoritarianism. Well, like, I mean, that's open society, closed society, like Karl Popper shit, yeah. which, by the way, I did look uh, from a previous episode. So that that was the inspiration for George Soros yes, having the open right. society, he was, like he like did, very he explicitly. Was a big Karl Popper fan, a huge Karl did, Popper yes. stand. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, yeah, like the it is basically is yeah exactly open society, closed society, or just like you know, I mean, I guess anti-authoritarianism, like the vision of anarchy is very vague and it's kind of just like you know everyone has a different idea like we're gonna have a vegan reich first and you know uh kill all the drug addicts and then we're gonna have anarchy you know like but you it, know it what be that is that literally is, anything that, is, that but, is actually sort of a a conservative form of dialectics you know it's like well first before we have the utopia we're gonna we're gonna take state power and remove the enemy <laughs> but then yeah, we can then I we mean, can have anarchy True, yeah. but like I mean, yeah. that just like is just one like iteration of like anarchy, which is ultimately extremely vague. I mean, there's a lot of vagaries yeah. when it comes to communism and to things like materialism as well. But I think definitely yeah. like anarchy, like practically speaking, is extremely nebulous what it actually stands for. Sure, and I'm for just, all intents yeah, and purposes, saying, like, it just becomes like to you know to quote these people who are like libertarians, but then they accidentally like reproduce Leninism. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, well, it's like, are you a libertarian or do you believe in using the state to like crush your enemy? Which one? Yeah, I mean, it's like Noam Chomsky, the greatest anarchist, you know, like the libertarian socialists, like ultimately, like these politics either just degenerate into like pure liberalism or into just nothing where you do nothing because like, like, you know, since whatever political action or whatever political choice you would make wouldn't instantly create like the the perfect society of like anarchy and total like mutual uh prosperity and, and right. voluntary relation then it's worthless then you know like nihilism yeah. all the way down yeah, yeah like and you know it's like yeah like in the the article uh the anar anarcho-queering article he talks yeah, about yeah. how you know like they cl- have these types of people will claim more intellectual development than quote statist cuba or black nationalists or any communist movement right. it's like that kind of flex of like cuba <laughs> they're authoritarian actually it's like shut the fuck up like what like it, it really is yeah. a meaningless term and it's at so at the core of everything that punk rock is like about and really even like countercultural a lot of the ca- angrier like psychedelic rock and like countercultural music in the 60s yeah. um, well, and I, you know i remember my uh my former friend i was telling you about who was like a libertarian punk had a debate with me one night about trans people and was like well listen man i'm not saying that we need to like hurt them or anything i just think <laughs> i think they're mentally ill and they need to be like given help and i was like so what does that mean like you you force them into like psychiatric institutions and he's like well i don't know maybe like and i was like well then how are you a libertarian like where's the libertarianism there like you're literally talking about rounding people up cops and putting them in like in a concentration camp because they're not they're gender non-conforming like where's the liberation 
very well, weird I guess uh, as long stance as to you take do it like with your own resources or something then it's libertarian i guess as long as the state doesn't do it and like you do it yourself <laughs> yeah as long know. as yeah. like other people's or naps aren't violated in some way yeah, yeah as like, long as the militia does it, it's okay. i mean yeah i guess like if you're a libertarian like of the state like if you the libertarian are like the one in power then you can just do anything libertarianly because like your individual rights are like now the state so you could yeah. just i, I mean know, this is basically like patroonship or like warlordism i mean yeah, it's totally then, incoherent yeah. but like really like i think by and large what the effect is is yeah just to like have you do nothing like sit around feeling superior like listening to whatever uh yeah. listening to punk music or to a podcast or, and then <laughs> you you know like uh don't like you know, you, you don't do anything because like if you were to do something, then you would be subject to some kind of criticism, you know, like uh, you, that would mean that you weren't in somehow like in this like pure state because like, yeah, like I'm totally complicit in capitalism in every way, you know, I go about my day to day life and like interact with capitalism and uh, perpetuate it like constantly, but I'm not like trying to build anything politically. So yeah. therefore, like if I were trying, then that would be, you know, I would be indicted because then I would somehow be authoritarian or something like, but since I'm not out there saying that what I'm doing is good, then I don't know. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Well, you could uh, even imagine, you could even imagine a kind of anarchist deconstruction of, of Fred Hampton saying dare to struggle, dare to win, where they could be like, well, you know, struggling means that there's competition, which we're against. And then also winning means there's a loser. And winning winners and losers, that's actually capitalism bourgeois mm -hmm. ideology. So really it's Fred Hampton who's the bourgeois, <laughs> the yeah. bourgeois like you know, ideologist here. I'm the true company. Right. Very that's kind of that's kind of I don't know, maybe taking it too far, but I've heard arguments from people in real life to my face that are very similar. I mean, you know, I think I think it's kind of a right wing canard that they usually bring up like sarcastically when they're complaining about wokeness, but like people yeah. saying that like math is racist. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. but I feel like I've heard things that are like close, kind of close to that. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, like, know. yeah. And yeah. I mean, even I mean, though we know like the Copenhagen thing. interpretation is a psyop, is an on top <laughs> and, you know, other things like that. But like, it's like, it's weird how there's a kind of like, it almost is a kind of punkish thing in maybe some of the, uh, the linguistic uh, kind of reforms that I think yeah. we've all seen over the last few years with like, uh, what is it called? Like standpoint, uh, well, really, well, like it, I, I would say like that queer, like, like you know, uh, gender, gender queer. When yeah. I was growing up, gender queer, which is now something that's you know uh, a bit more mainstream, that was actually like a sort of punk thing. Like yeah. that was sort of like a punk subculture in a way. Not that there weren't gender nonconforming people or that there weren't non-binary people, but like the terminology of gender queer and like queerness that was kind of associated almost with, but uh, punk culture or goths and i think that like, that you know and because a lot of academics are like you know if you're talking about academia a lot of academics are sort of uh former outsiders like with you know white middle class backgrounds yeah. and so they yeah. definitely there's a sympathy like there's a lot i mean michael mohammed knight again no offense to him like uh he's done some uh interesting work like on islam in, in many ways um but he's an example of someone who you know uh 
is uh, was super into punk and into these topics and now like you know is just like an Islamic studies professor you know like uh, or at least uh, yeah, I think a, an Islamic studies professor um, there's many people like that I think that there is like definitely like a strong representation of like uh, punk or people who have punk backgrounds I mean Genesis Peorage you know right. she is like someone right. who I think has some sort of academic cachet or you know oh, donna haraway and things like that like that type oh, yeah. of thing is taken seriously we, uh, so yeah i mean i think didn't that even that, get into kind of the uh, the industrial movement yeah well i <laughs> think that you know uh, autism and stuff. definitely yeah. and i think definitely. that that is that is true in a way like when it gets to like and what i don't like about that i mean like you said you know the copenhagen interpretation is a psyop and an on top and there's like many and there are aspects to uh, like the way that mathematics is like framed and the language around mathematics that yes. like definitely are Eurocentric. However, like there also is like kind of like a reverse chauvinism of it where it's like, oh, you know, like books are racist when like, of course, like there's plenty of cultures like that are not like European that have used books or have used numbers. Yeah. And like to say well, that there aren't is that's like, the, you know, it's like the knee jerk lack of rigor and like yeah. hearing well, you what you're saying. At, you look at the, well, the because again, that requires like, and that's, this is something that I think is sort of related to, uh, you know, the reason why, for instance, like indigenous uh, like knowledges are so much, uh, are so highly valued in academia as like a, uh, you know, a, a thing to sort of return to for like new political uh, ideas because not to say that we're completely cut off from like all of the indigenous epistemologies, but it's like, you know, of course there was a horrible genocide that happened that did wipe out a lot of knowledge institutions. I don't think that in our efforts to uh, not suggest that, uh, you know, it, the uh, Native Americans don't exist anymore or their knowledges or their traditions don't exist anymore, that like a lot wasn't lost. Uh, I don't think we should suggest that because certainly much was. But what does exist also is inaccessible. It's often closed. So I think that because you don't really have to engage with it, you can just say like, oh, well, it would be great to sort of like vaguely gesture towards this. For instance, like that is much more popular than say like, let's look at the history of Islam or of Christianity, yeah. you know, yeah. because the history of those religions, like we, uh, or those, you know, uh, broader sort of the cultures that are associated with those religions, they're quite ugly. Like there's many ugly things in them, Like there's yeah. many unpleasant things in them. Like you can't create a utopian fantasy out of that. Like you have to deal with like sort of the, the reality, which I think is the same thing of being like, you know, there never was like an anarchist, uh, you know, uh, Soviet Union of, of anarchist republics, you know, there never was yeah. anything like that where you can say like, oh, you know, that didn't work. You know, you can go like say the Spanish Civil War, you know, like or in May 68, uh, May 1968, we were anarchists for two days and like uh, it was great. But then like the capitals or something like that, you know, so it is an interesting like, parallel to like talking about the history of Marxism, like. Like, I remember I took a socialist theory class my last year in college, and I don't think it covered it, like, stopped at like 1917, which yeah. is just like, I like it was an I interesting class, but like, what, what are you, why? Because, like, when <laughs> like, things you know are actually mean? attempted, like, yeah. when things actually materialize in reality outside of like some like theoretical pose, then like, there's often like bad things that occur that like are the result of like, or that can be associated with the thing that was attempted if they're never yeah. attempted they can remain in this like you know or if they're not if there's not knowledge of them or if they're kind of just in this sort of space of vague you know uh like pollyannism then yeah. like they they don't have to you don't have to deal with like the 
the uncomfortable realities that emerge, you know, like, uh, and like, because if, you know, if your stance is that if anything ever goes wrong, or there's anything bad associated with something, then like, it's over forever, you yeah. know, like, because Mark said this thing about Jews, you know, there's nothing yeah. of value in studying Marx because uh, this person did this. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, exactly. You know. Exactly. Like, and, and it gets tarred with like, what gets constantly reinforced, especially in our American culture is that, like it went wrong when they started doing authoritarianism and it's yeah, kind of exactly. like what like were once, they supposed once to they do? got like... any state power like once <laughs> yeah. it exists yeah exactly it reminds me of someone saying like you know uh i really like malcolm x but he made many mistakes including convert to islam and it's like so what like you were a fan of malcolm little like you were a fan <laughs> of him like before he got into politics like at all like what well, you, like, you know, know that that ties into something i've said on twitter before that probably some people disagree with but i i just feel like it's true is you know i feel like it someone made the point the other day that it's like well you can't really bring up either Marx or Bakunin being anti-Semitic because, you know, there was just a lot of anti-Semitism back then. And it's like, in Marx's case, I think, I know how this is going to, it's going to sound like I'm just doing team sports, but <laughs> in Marx's case, I think that's true because his system of thought doesn't rely on anti-Semitism. Bakunin literally believed that like Marx his version of socialism was like an extension of like Rothschild, like banking, like <laughs> trying yeah, to. I actually like, didn't. Yeah, know, I didn't know that Bakunin went that much, hard in the paint. On he was yeah, much like, more of an anti-Semite than Marx. I mean, on the Jewish question, this and say that the translation is like opportunist or something. But like, I mean, he says there are two passages online that I know statements that Bakunin made where he said Jews like. Have historically been the people who like try to centralize like state authority and you know Marx his whole like, concept of trying to like use you know capitalism's tendency to centralize as a way to like as a way to build up worker power. It's actually a con to like get workers to support. Yeah, it, it's also it is somewhat relevant that, that Marx, is, Marx is technically Jewish also. Well, yeah, yeah sure. oh, but I will say, I mean, there are many anti-Semitic Jews I, and Marx is on course. the Jewish question is, I would say, not nearly as anti-Semitic as the things that Bakunin believed and wrote, but I'd yeah. still consider it to be pretty anti-Semitic. Like, and, I know and, people and, will argue and be like, he was saying that, you know, Jews seem to give up all their entire culture and their religion and they'll be fine. There's something ontologically bad about them. But I feel like that's still kind of yeah like you know saying like no, once you know, sure. uh that's still kind of like a little bit fucked up people are gonna I, get mad at me for saying that but yeah. my whole point is that that doesn't like that was part of his intellectual milieu he was addressing a deeply anti-semitic culture right. uh you know that he existed within like right. he can't exempt he couldn't exempt himself from it any more than he could exempt himself from any number of things that doesn't mean that like his work and his ideas have no value they evidently do because of their incredible influence like yeah. you know there's value in considering the writings of even people who were like Wagner who were like extreme anti-semites like right. you know uh right. especially to their cultural influence and uh you know but like if you say like oh well you know yeah so i think that's part of that impulse yeah, yeah it does i want to i uh, want to draw one last comparison too between what bakunin what we were just talking about what bakunin was saying and uh, uh, someone i know in real life who is like kind of from the scene who their their weird kind of journey led them to become a uh, anarcho-capitalist and also a flat earth believer 
Huh. <laughs> we were discussing things one night and basically his kind of view of history is that the enlightenment was a conspiracy to make people believe in a round earth to discourage <laughs> people from believing in like the Christian God basically. And that science from then has proceeded in that direction. And that, you know, uh, that's the, the, the kind of authoritarianism. There's a kernel of truth in that. Well, uh, and a, well authoritarianism <laughs> crops up in this regard because, uh, you know, if you were just going to let people investigate things on their own or whatever, they would come to the conclusion that no, the earth is flat. <laughs> and it, and, and, you know, all of this, you know, physics and stuff is incorrect. And, and it was interesting to me because it was in some ways, these arguments that he's made and that I've seen from other flat earthers were similar to kind of criticisms of science from like Foucault and like people. Like, yeah, exactly. Like it's a very postmodern kind of view. Yeah. Of and, it, and, so, and like you're saying, yeah, some of it is valid. It's just like interesting to me because it's similar. I think, I think throughout all these libertarian kind of versions of libertarianism, there's this idea of, of, of the state emerges as a corrupting force. And if you simply resist the state as a concept, you're resisting a degeneration of humanity and you're like rising humanity. Yeah, like that's like the that's what Alex Jones says all the time. Like exactly. humanity is rising. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like the anti-civ anarchist thing where like we need Absolutely. to get away, like go away from civilization itself. Like it's more than because like the modern state really is something that uh, is like you know sort of originates with the enlightenment or you know the modern yeah. nation state is like a, a relatively new thing but yeah. societies before that were authoritarian in many ways and like they weren't necessarily like something that we should you know return with a v2 like in an uncritical way like you know <laughs> or just assume like we're like you know there was some kind of like uh almost like a allegorical fall from grace that happens yeah. like with you know but i think that it is valuable to consider like past uh modes of of civilization past epistemic regimes because there is value in them that doesn't mean that it is possible it is desirable or possible at all to like truly just completely go back. them yeah. but you know totally. and the most in insane version of that even more so than like the integralist idea of like you know a global catholic monarchy in like the medieval fashion is like the thinking we're all going to be hunter gatherers or something Absolutely. and then we're all going to be happy yeah. like i mean steven pinker is like a, a fool and a rube for saying like everything has gotten better or like what you yeah. know like we're just everything's better now than it's ever been well and, when know, you're like, looking out the of the window of epstein's plane it, it probably uh, does look pretty good if you're a sick yeah exactly um, i mean yeah. look at look at epstein himself you know the the, the his idea of of you know his kind of concept like how he interpreted transhumanism you know, is really how a lot of those guys think about libertarianism as well. It's like, you know, if you have uh, the system allows us who are the uh, the worthy to divorce ourselves from the lower classes, you know, except insofar as we want to use them for our own pleasure. And then we can build machines that will, you know, take us to the next level because you know, or right. achieve infinite life. I was reading yeah, the other yeah. day. I forget who, or whatever. But, make, uh, or make the human race, you know, all little Epstein. You know, yeah, like, like, yeah, like, yeah. see, <laughs> everyone that's left is going to be like our genetic children or something, like clones yeah. or whatever. Uh, I know Peter Thiel and a bunch of other people, like in his circles in Silicon Valley, have made agreements to freeze their bodies when they die so that they mm -hmm. can be 
uh, thawed out when medical technology advances. And, is, and isn't it and isn't it funny that we we keep turning up all these links uh, in our own kind of modern countercultures in the last ten years or so to Peel and <laughs> and yeah uh, <laughs> yeah the, yeah. Oh, the, the whole PayPal mafia. Even Courtney Love the other day was like calling out Elon Musk for making that rude comment to Bernie. Like, are you still alive? And she was like. <laughs> Like, you know, newsflash Elon, like I was blind CC'd on your PayPal mafia email thread for months and I saw all the messages you said. So like you should be nice to Bernie. And it was like it's like <laughs> this weird thread, but it's like, wait, why is Courtney Love BCC'd on a PayPal Mafia like group email thread? Like what the fuck? Mm. Like, like uh, it's interesting that, that they're weird. all like, you know, corresponding with each other. But like, why is Courtney Love in on the mix uh, with it? You know? Yeah. I don't, yeah. And like, I definitely feel Talk like that punk, punk you ethos, know. you know, as you said at the very beginning, Dimitri, like it's a kind of like a dirtbag type of thing, you know, like the sort of like contrarianism that is like very attractive, like up to a certain point, but then becomes very hollow. Yeah. Um, in a way it either uh, retreats even, into or liberalism even, or, or becomes it, becomes substantive but in a very reactionary <laughs> yeah true. the only way it can really like manifest and like actualize itself is by like random chaotic fasci violence basically yeah but, like once you try to like initiate it onto the world or you end up being like an ned influence op campaign like sponsored very, by the cia yeah. yeah yeah neither of which i think are very punk at all <laughs> or or are they exactly or are they extremely punk yeah, i don't yeah. know but it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing i mean it as is. avril lavigne said i think just like doing what you want is much more punk than wondering if something really is punk or whatever there we go you know? she's a rock chick she loves to rock out all right okay, this this is actually very unpunk but i'm gonna have to go because i, I gotta start getting ready for work but um, <laughs> all right. before I before I, before I leave, uh, I want to I want to no, actually plug one punk band that I, I don't think gets enough attention. Okay. From the '80s, and a friend of mine showed them to me a while back. Uh, they're called the Fearless Iranians from Hill, <laughs> and they have a lot of great music. But they were a concept band. I don't know. I think one of the guys in the band was uh, Arab, but the other three might have been white guys because I believe they were from Dallas. But uh. But uh, they have a great song called Blow Up the Embassy. And oh. it's basically, basically the entire thing is that while Iran-Contra was going, this band was like, what if we wrote punk music from the perspective of like the Iranian like government? <laughs> like the <That's> Iranian <laughs> government, you know? That's and so yeah. it's all about, you know, uh, they have they have a, a song called Die for Allah. <laughs> oh that's right. cool yeah. Uh, yeah i see it here yeah feel the silence from hell but they, they have they have a great i don't know how they how they were saying without people trying to kill them, i don't know that that reminds me of, <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me a lot of a similar group they're a little more like post-punk but they were from la in the 80s called savage republic i think i've showed okay. called them before um a lot of their music was like instrumental, but they had this kind of theme of being almost like a Qaddafi, like, uh, like green revolution kind of aesthetic to like all their music. Um, and, uh, yeah. it's pretty, I would definitely check. They had a few albums in the eighties, um, before they yeah. broke up, but I checked them out as well. Um, I almost started, uh, the last thing I'm going to say before I got to go, I almost started a project with a friend of mine, you know, have you ever heard of like a Marshall industrial? 
it's a subgenre of industrial like warlike like, industrial yeah regular industrial is not warlike enough well yeah, it's overt this one is like overtly fascist like it quotes mm-hmm. i wanted to make a band like that but it would be kind of like a, a tanky equivalent and it was going to be named <laughs> after a chapter of a michael Brenty book called stalin's fingers <laughs> <laughs> Nice. And it would have, you know, samples of Stalin speeches and now speeches. I'm kind of glad I didn't do it because it probably would have ended up being kind of cringy. But, <laughs> but. Yeah, you might have gotten like negative attention uh, for it. Yeah, I might have been, you know, criticized. I'm sure you would have been criticized, but, uh, but yeah. Anyway. Everybody's a critic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. well, I, right. I, I got I to get going. But right. I really, uh, I enjoyed being on Subliminal G. Yeah, glad to have you. Thank oh, you so yeah, much. Well, yeah. Uh, where could people find you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? You can find me at the underscore wub underscore. And then my WordPress is the wub lies Awesome. Yeah, definitely check that out. A lot of good content there. Thanks for coming into the grotto, wub. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, we'll. Uh, We'll see we'll see you out there on the info war battlefield and <laughs> until next time dear listeners stay vigilant peace i'm gonna kill myself i'm gonna lie dead on the floor start your fucking business what i live and die for I gotta hijack a flame I won't do it for glory or fame And when they catch me they'll see I'm insane Put you on a regular shame I'll do it over again and again I do it over again and again I do it over again and again